Well, hello everyone. It is that Williams guy here for yet yet another episode. Uh, we're actually recording this on December the twelfth at seven twenty p.m., but you won't hear it until next week. So, but it won't be next week when you hear it. It'll be this week when you hear it. Uh, joining <laughs> joining me tonight is Ed Morellis. And uh, if you don't know that name, you should, because Ed was involved in one of the more pivotal incidents in American law enforcement. And we'll get into that in a moment. But Ed, if you would, say hello and introduce yourself to the audience. Hey, guys. Ed Morellis here. Glad to be here this evening with Lee. And hopefully uh, we'll give you an informative conversation. All right. Um, if you haven't gotten on Google yet and figured out who this is, uh, Ed was one of the agents that was involved in the infamous Miami firefight. Uh, April 11th, 1986. I remember the date. Correct. Yeah. Uh, several years ago, myself and, and John Hearn were in an FBI patrol rifle instructor class, and it was April the 11th, and I don't remember the exact year. And someone in the class started a caliber debate <laughs> in the class, and Hearn buried his face in his hands, and I like quickly got a picture of that. He's like, they're arguing about calibers <laughs> on the anniversary of it just that's uh, funny that's yeah. funny and uh of course that would tell you that he obviously knows about the incident because he knew it was the anniversary of, of the day <laughs> right all right um obviously we're going to talk about miami uh tonight but you know that's one part of your life that's an incident that you were involved in and i'm sure it shaped most of the rest of your life but that's not your entire life <laughs> so how did you get up to that point? Tell us about you before that day. Well, Lee, thanks for asking, you know, because uh, when I wrote my book, uh, my FBI Miami Firefight, uh, Five Minutes That uh, Changed the Bureau, I actually had written an autobiography. And uh, the, uh, the book, my original book was like 500 pages long. You know, I, I had everything from my childhood, you know, where I was born, raised, brought up and stuff like that, you know, and after after many 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 years and and editing, uh, all, all the professional editors seem to seem to think, hey, you know what, your childhood, your background is just a waste of time. People people don't want to know who you are or who. And I'm thinking, wow, well, that's unusual, you know. So uh, I cut all that out, you know. And then when I put my book out uh, about three and a half years ago, uh, May of uh, 2018, I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, People said, hey, why didn't you put more about your background, about your childhood? <laughs> and I'm thinking, you can't win. You know, yeah. the, the professional people are saying, don't, you know, nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, the reader is saying, hey, we want to know more about your background. You know, so, right. so I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk. And I, I was born in Texas, South Texas, in the uh, early 1950s. I was the oldest of four kids. And, uh, you know, um, uh, obviously a, a Mexican family down there. And... Uh, you know, I had, in all honesty, I had a great childhood, man. I, I mean, I, I, I look back on it, I, I laugh, and I thank God. I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. I had a great family, mother, father, uh, three, uh, a brother and two sisters. And um, I was kind of like in a, like a, a prison <laughs> because our house was set like in, in, at a, in, in a cul-de-sac we were at the six o'clock on the cul-de-sac and then my, my, my dad's mom, my, my, uh, uh, paternal, uh, um, grandmother was at three o'clock and my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother was at, at the nine o'clock position. And then of course the 12 o'clock position was the street, you know, so 
I mean, I had two grandmothers on both sides, and I don't know how that worked out that way. But man, I tell you what, if you acted out of, if you acted up or acted cool, man, judgment would judgment would come down on <laughs> from on high. Boom. <laughs> I grew up in very similar circumstances in middle Georgia. I grew up next door to my father's mother, mm -hmm. uh, but my father's brother lived on the other side of us. And my grandmother's brother lived across the street from us with two of his children mm -hmm. uh, living on his property. Mm -hmm. And then all of the, at, at, twice in my lifetime, there's been four generations alive on both sides of the road. Right. And, uh, and then other great man. uncles and aunts within miles of us. Family is a, is a good, I mean, that's the good uh, uh, drill sergeant, you know. <laughs> no, but I, I, like I said, I had a great life. You know, it was church, family, school, mm -hmm. you know, and then when I uh, when I was about six years old, we moved from, from uh, uh, I was born in Alice, Texas. We moved uh, about 50 miles away because my dad had been commuting back and forth to work for like two or three years. He goes, this, this is ridiculous, you know? Even though gas was like 15 cents a gallon at the time, you know, he said, that's too expensive. So we moved, you know, we picked up and moved, you know, and then uh, ended up uh, in a place called Beeville. And you know what, again, it was a great a great childhood, you know? I mean, uh, <laughs> I think back on it and I have to laugh, you know, I said, hey, I, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but we were all dirt poor. You know, everybody was dirt poor. I mean, you know, it's like, everybody the whole yeah. town was poor you know so and nobody had air conditioning you know and i used to sleep like a baby you know we yeah. slept with the windows open the, the mm -hmm. screen door up you know and had a great time you know and then uh, you know there's reality start coming in uh into life you know but that's back in the mid 60s mm -hmm. you know the vietnam war you know started becoming you know I, as i became older i started becoming much more aware of, of life you know the news and so on and so forth then I realized that, hey, there's this thing called Vietnam, and I think, what the hell is Vietnam? You know, so, and then I found out what uh, what it was when I got a draft notice. You know, <laughs> that's a sobering letter to open. Yeah. yeah, that's a slap in reality. Yeah. So I said, hey, I'll show Uncle Sam. I, I I'm, I'm not going to let him draft me. So I joined the Marine Corps. You know, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then um, by the time I got through my training, you know, I I, I volunteered for four years, but I, I didn't. I ended up not going to Vietnam because by that time. You know uh, the uh, the powers that be the the Paris peace talks. You know ended yeah. up uh, coming up with a peace agreement. You know so so I had like three and a half years left in my on my on my tour. You know I'm thinking what the hell am I going to do now? You know? So <laughs> I ended up you know serving you know in the Marine Corps. You know in, in uh, Washington D.C. and in Europe. You know and then eventually okay. I got got back out and came home. You know so though it was a great life. You know and I had the opportunity with the GI Bill to go to school and stuff like that and you know, I mean, things happen for a reason. I happened to, to, to be, when I was in the Marine Corps, I happened to meet a, uh, a an active duty FBI agent, you know, uh, in, in circles that, 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 that he, he came, he associated with the Marines, you know, somehow. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to know him for about two years and he goes, hey, you know, he said, uh, you're, all, you're going to school, you know, part-time. I said, yeah, yes, yes, sir. He said, hey, I've been watching you. And he said, hey, I think you'd be a good candidate to be an FBI agent. And I, tell you, I looked at him, you know, like one of those cartoons, like my eyes go, whoo. Uh -huh. I said, are you joking? Are you serious? He said, yeah. He said, uh, with your military background, he said, and when you finish your four-year degree, he said, I think, I think you'd be a great candidate. He said, here's my card. I'm going to get you an application. And, uh, you know, when I, when I get it, he said, I'll bring it to you. And then you make several copies of the application 
and then start working on the on the questions and answers and you know and, and so you know like the background investigation uh -huh. and i thought that was like outrageous because back then it was like 12 pages you know it's like 12 uh -huh. pages of questions now i think it's like 52 pages of questions you know? so <laughs> who knows now it's been so long but uh, you know I, I just happen to be so blessed that uh, i applied and i i got accepted you know into the fbi you know, because and he said hey also Use me as a reference. So he said, oh, shoot, uh, it can't hurt, you know, to use an FBI agent as a reference, you know, so. But, and then I uh, went through the academy <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it was interesting because I was a, a long weapon guy with the Marine Corps, obviously came up with the M14 and then transitioned to the M16. I, I've always been an M14, you know, fan, you know, at the M16, you know, it, it's okay. You know, but uh, I like that big old, you know, 308, you know, <laughs> so. But be that as it may, you know, uh, went through the academy and I was assigned to Washington field office at, uh, out, of, out of the academy. So, which was interesting, you know, um, mm -hmm. never been from the big city, you know, and I end up in Washington, D.C. with all the cap, you know, all the monuments, mm -hmm. the White House, the Capitol, and stuff like that. So I uh, started working. Uh, I was assigned to a bank robbery squad, but, you know, we were the young punks, you know, the, man, the senior guys worked the bank robberies and the young guys did all the gopher work. You know, we did, you know, because it's a huge office and there's a lot of administrative minutia that has to be handled, you know, uh, like a lot of times, you know, like uh, when, when uh, President Reagan was elected in, in 1980, his whole cabinet had to be investigated, background yeah. checks. So those investigations were assigned to the whole world, you know. So we did the background investigations and, and the old guys, the cigar smokers and stuff, you know, did the bank robbery. You know? So I think I did investigations for the for the Reagan administration for like six, eight months, you know. So yeah. I never saw a bank, you know. So but anyway, I mean I still learned. I learned some things, yeah. you know, and I I, I went on um, you know, had saw some good experiences and then I got I was transferred over to uh, the terrorism squad. Uh, a lot of people probably don't remember, but in the eighties early 80s, you know, uh, Central America was a big, yeah. big cauldron of, of issues, you know. Mm -hmm. You had uh, uh, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, you had the, the, the uh, El Salvadorians, you know, with the right-wing death squads and the left-wing death squads and, mm -hmm. you know, death squad, death squad. I mean, it was just incredible, you know. So, so since I spoke Spanish, you know, I, I was assigned to the Central American Terrorism uh, Task Force, you know, so and that's where that's that's what I did for the most most of the time in uh, in Washington. And uh, then I, I uh, met met uh, my wife, and uh, and uh, when I was working a case, uh, it ended up going to Miami. So um, we got married, and then uh, because she was in Miami and I was in Washington D.C., you know, they said, hey, you know, we have to put these two guys in one common common household. So they transferred me to Miami in 1985, and that's how I ended up in Miami. You know, just and I tell you what, though, if, if you have two diametrically opposed cities, Washington, D.C., and Miami, Florida, man, I got to Miami. And I was like, oh, hallelujah, man. This is like, <laughs> this is like tropical heaven, you know? So I tell you, at the time, Miami had a, well, probably still does, you know? I haven't been to Miami in several years, but uh, Miami had a flavor all its own. I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, it was just, words can't describe it, you know. I mean, you had the cocaine cowboys and the beaches and the sunshine. And, 
you know, all, all the fraud and stuff, you know, it was like a law enforcement officer's paradise, you know, so, yeah. and, uh, you know, Liz, since my wife Liz was uh, in, in the Miami office, you know, she, she did some lobbying politic for me, you know, she, she, she got me uh, assigned to the, uh, she knew the background of the supervisor, Gordon McNeil, so she, she went to him and said, hey, my husband's coming down, you know, he's on the bank robbery squad or was on the bank robbery squad at WFO. He'd like to be on the bank robbery squad here and so on and so forth, you know. And she looked him right in the eye and she goes, and my husband doesn't have an opinion about nothing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> good old, I keep telling you, good old Liz lied. You know, for yeah. me, you know? <laughs> she hates it when I say that joke. You yeah. know? But anyway, so I, I got transferred down and I was on the bankrupt squad. I'll tell you what, that was a great squad, though. It was like 18 men, you know, uh, and mm -hmm. there's no no racism or sexism there, you know. I mean, it was all yeah. men. I mean, because yeah. at the time, uh, women in the FBI was, was still kind of a novelty, even though the first uh, female FBI agent came in like in 1972, I believe. So that was like eight years, in, you know, that the Bureau had to recruit. But at the time, I think there were only like four or five, maybe six female agents in Miami. So, you know, I mean, they couldn't be everywhere, you know. So uh, we had 18 guys on the squad, you know. It was, it was a good bunch of guys, you know. Had senior guys, guys with 18, 20 years in, had journeyman guys with 10, 12, and then you had all the punks like me with the five and six years in service, you know. So it was a great squad. Had bank robberies, fugitives, kidnappings, I mean, I mean, that was heaven. I mean, it was just rock and roll. I mean, every single day was something new, some, you know, you know, running and gunning, you know, speeding someplace, you know, uh, responding to a bank robbery or armored truck robbery. So, um, you know, I acclimated, I think I acclimated pretty well to the squad. And then um, right about uh, like mm, August of 1985, something unusual was happening because we, uh, the squad, I mean, everybody has, uh, you know, when you work in a certain area, it's like working a beat, you work a beat, yeah. a neighborhood, you know, you, you get to know everything. Okay, hey, this is unusual. This guy shouldn't be open at nine o'clock in the evening. Or, hey, this is normal. You know, it's a, it's a restaurant. You know, you, you get to, to learn the pattern, you know. So, so in Miami, we had, at the time, we had two active robber uh, gangs. We call them very simply the black gang and the Hispanic gang, the, the, the Cuban gang. Uh -huh. Okay. And of course, that, then on top of that, you had your average run of the mill guard variety independent bank robber. Okay. So you always had, you always had some bank robber coming in from, you know, from out of, out of left uh -huh. field. So, but, but we had two major gangs that we were working on. And then all of a sudden, you know, out of nowhere comes this uh, third group. You know, it's like, what in the heck? Who are these guys? And the best way I can describe them, uh, based on what in 1985 terms would be, they were like uh, survivalists, you know, like that's when the survivalists first started coming up, uh -huh. the militia groups, you know, but the militia was very extreme. The survivalists were more, you know, like campers, you know, like yeah. uh, armed campers, you know, so they were somewhere in between, you know, so it, it became obvious that, or pretty obvious that they had some military background. And uh, the first indication that we had that something was odd, you know, was the very first robbery that we can attribute to, uh, to these two guys was at a steak and ale uh, restaurant 
in the middle of, of the day, like noon, 12 noon, 12.30, they uh, attacked a, uh, an armored truck uh, delivery courier and, and robbed him at gunpoint, you know, and uh, they only got about $8,000, you know, because he had a little small, like an envelope sized bag as opposed to one of those big money bags, you know, so. So uh, they hit him on the head and said, hey, tell your buddy to open the back door of the armored truck, you know, and, you know, they have orders not to do that, you know. So when they, they walked him over with a gun in his ear and said, hey, you know, they showed the driver, hey, we got your buddy here, you know, open the door. You know, uh, the policy, uh, armored truck policy is to look, do not, not open the door. You know, he put yeah. the truck in and drive and drove away, you know, so it's like, I, I wouldn't want to be the guy like <laughs> standing there like, oh, God, help me. Yeah. So anyway, they hit him on the back of the head. And then one of the two had a, a, an assault rifle, opens up on the back of the truck, and they fired like 14, 15 rounds at the back of the truck. Of course, you know, it's armored, so it's nothing happened, you know. So they, they hit the guy in the head, the courier, and they ran to a car, jumped in the car, and sped away out of the parking lot. And when they're leaving the parking lot, they... For some reason, they threw out two smoke grenades out of the car. You know, it's like, you know, that was just bizarro. You know, it's like, yeah. you drop a smoke grenade here, but you're speeding away at 40 miles an hour. What, what good does it do? <laughs> you know, so, but needless to say, that was a, an unusual robbery. You know, so two smoke grenades were, were like, what the yeah. hell, you know? So, so anyway, we, we showed up and we interviewed the, the two couriers and witnesses. And we said, well, you know, this, this is odd, you know, so. And then like within a week, you know, uh, we we suspected it was the same gang because there was another robbery at a at a grocery store. And man, they in the middle of the day, thank God that the uh, security guards, the uh, couriers only had six shots apiece because the three guards fired all six shots, that's 18 rounds, and the band guys fired about 12. So you had a total of 30 rounds fired in a shopping center in front of a grocery store, like a, like a, a Safeway or a Giant or a Winn-Dixie, in front of one of those grocery stores, women and children coming out, you know, 30 shots were fired between five people and only one one guard was hit. You know, it's like amazing, <laughs> absolutely amazing. But again, an unusual robbery. You know? I mean, it's like, what the hell, you know? So, uh, but you know what, though, on, on a more serious note, you know, the, the guard that was shot, you know, I tell people, I said, hey, you know, uh, do you believe in luck, you know, uh, and, and I, I say, well, you know, I'm, some people say no, some people say yes, or the people that say no, okay, uh, if you had a choice between being lucky and unlucky, which would you rather be, you know, <laughs> I'd rather be lucky, obviously, you know, so, but anyway, there's a, a saying in the Bible, a biblical saying, you know, Ecclesiastes 9-11, you know, it states that the, the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, you know, and it goes on, and it says, but time and chance, time and chance happen to, happens to us all, okay, and then this is one of those cases where a time and chance, the guard that was shot was shot in the legs, okay, and he was an older gentleman like me, you know, I mean, he was, you know, retired, he was probably doing this as, as a retirement job, you know, he was shot in the leg, and he never, he, he was sent to the hospital. He never came out of the hospital. He had complications, you know, from the, from the, the wound. And then he was older and developed pneumonia and eventually he died. So mm. it's just one of those things, you know, uh, but that was the first confirmed, you know, homicide attributed to these people. You know, so, yeah. so, uh, 
but obviously we we didn't know that at the time, you know, because he would linger on for months and then eventually he would die from his complications, you know. So then the next robbery is an attempted robbery. Um, I think it was the next day, I believe, uh, of adults uh, restaurant, you know, and that that was a, a fiasco. Again, they, they didn't get any money. Only four or five shots were exchanged you know, during during that robbery, you know. So, so then you know, these, only these, four or five. In <laughs> the scheme of thirty and, and yeah. fifteen shots, you know, everything's relative, you know. Yeah. So, you and I both know that even one shot is not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> even even one single shot is bad, bad, bad. Yeah, but boss, this time we only fired four times. You know, yeah, we only, only four shots, boss. <laughs> I guess when when you when you put it in those terms, it is kind of kind of dumb, you know. <laughs> but so then, then the, the the next thing that happened was uh, you had uh, there was a, uh, a a day, you know, when when they they hit two two banks. One bank was a walk up teller. And they only got ten thousand dollars from the teller. You know, she was went from the main building to the teller island. That's way before they had the tunnels underneath yeah. and stuff like that. You know, so so they only got ten thousand dollars. And we said, okay, you know, we responded to that. And then, like ninety minutes later, like uh, noon, you know, we we got a call, you know, saying there was a big bank robbery, like uh, ten blocks away. Okay, and uh, again, they only fired one shot. You know, so but it was, it was typical, like. Miami Vice or like the movie Heat, you walk into a bank, you know, it's full of people. They had like 30, 25, 30 people in the bank. One of the bad guys goes and boom, fires around in the air. Everybody on the floor, you know, it's like, you know, that'll get your attention, you know? Mm -hmm. So everybody goes down, they went in, they, they went behind the teller, the tellers and they pulled out two big bags of uh, Wells Fargo bags and then they ran out of the bank. I think they got something like $50,000 in that robbery. So that, that was pretty good. One, you know. So yeah. they had two robberies in one in, in one day. You know. So again, <clears throat> only one shot fired. <laughs> so so uh, then they, they they had a little hiatus, you know. Uh, well, let, let me take a step back. The robberies that I'm telling you about are all confirmed robberies that are attributed to these two bank robbers, which ended up being Platt Maddox. Right. The uh, one, one of the guys was named Clap, and the other one was named Maddox. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, um, God, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, so those robbers were all attributed to them. Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Those robbers were all attributed to them. But from a, an investigative standpoint, we had a, a total of about 14 or 15 robberies with the same MO, okay, yeah. the same modus operandi. Okay, these robbers that I'm, I'm speaking about are positively linked to these two guys through forensics, right. shell casings or witnesses or, or, or wound, wound ballistics and everything else, you know. So those are the only cases that probably, if we had gone to trial, would have been used against them. All the other 10 cases, the balance of the 10 cases was all MO, no, yeah. no real hard evidence, you know. So, so um, even though there was a, like a, a six-week period where the, we didn't have any any confirmed robberies. There there was robberies going on. So, so the next robbery happened on January tenth uh, in uh, nineteen eighty-six. And um, well, the, again, one of those harsh uh, robberies, you know, armored truck robbery. Armored truck was making a delivery. 
out of the blue, somebody just walks up behind him, shoots him in the legs. He goes down. They go in and grab a, a bunch of money bags and they take off. But before he takes off, the other guy, one of them had a shotgun. The other one had the assault rifle. The guy with the assault rifle walks up to the guard who's on, on the ground, face down, and puts two rounds in his back. Mm-hmm. Okay, pop, pop, you know, just two double, uh, a double tap, you know, and time and chance. Amazingly, that security guard shot with a shotgun in the legs and then two shots with a, with a two, two, three caliber in the back survived. Okay, and you think, well, how is that possible? The, 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 the bad guard, the other guard was shot in the legs with a, with a, with a uh, shotgun pellets. And this guy shot in the back twice with an assault rifle. He survives, you know. I mean, sometimes you just can't figure it out, you know. But again, time and chance, you know, time and chance happens. So uh, at that robbery, we we uh, somebody somebody followed them after the robbery and watched them change cars at a Burger King nearby. And that's when we recovered the uh, gold color Monte Carlo. And that's a <coughs> oh, too. That's the first time that uh, I became aware of an individual by the name of Emilio Priel, because his uh, the vehicle was uh, was registered to, to the Briel family, you know. So, and unfortunately, uh, the Briel the Briel family had had registered a missing persons report uh, because their son had gone out to target practice in the Everglades and never came back. You know, so, so um, since we recovered the car, we knew, hey, there's a uh, these guys are probably going to be looking for another uh, robbery car. So the next incident that happened, that was January. The next incident that happened was in March. Okay. So um, uh, Jose Calazo happened to be target practicing out in the Everglades and um, just a routine day. You know, he's, uh, he, he's, he became a witness. He looked over and says, hey, he sees another car pulling up into the shooting area. Uh, and it was a white pickup truck, two guys in it. He waves at them, you know, and they wave back. So he continues shooting his 22 rifle. And um, next thing you know, like a few minutes later, he says he kind of sends something behind him and he looks, and there's two guys behind him, you know, one with an assault rifle, one with a, a handgun. <laughs> and they said, hey, you know, give us your guns, give us your car, give us your wallet, and so on. He goes, hey, no problems, man, comply. He gave it to him. And then he said that, uh, he got a bad feeling. This is when they said, "Hey, turn around and walk towards that lake." You know, <laughs> you know what, what does that tell you? you know, yeah. like, oh God, are we going swimming, Dad? You know, uh, <laughs> no, yeah. you're going swimming. You know, so he said he got a very bad feeling. You know, so he said he got, was kind of dragging his feet. You know, and, and the uh, the guy with the handgun was poking him in the back and you know, trying to encourage him to walk faster. Mm-hmm. And then he did one of those kung fu moves. You know, like. You know, you know, you sweep the gun off your off your body. Mm-hmm. You know, you turn your body, and he they started fighting over the gun. You know, and uh, when they're fighting over the gun, uh, the 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 young man by the name of Jose Calazo was shot through through the hand, and then he was shot through the shoulder, and was shot shot in the face. You know, so it's just a, an amazing uh, incident of survival. You know, so um, I tell people, I said, hey, you shoot somebody in the face, that's 99 times out of 100, that's a killing shot. You know, so this guy, the guy who shot him, probably thought, hey, I shot him in the face. He's he's 99% dead, so he left him there. And they grabbed his stuff. They grabbed his car, grabbed his rifle and everything else, and they, and they drove away. 
And uh, Jose Galazzo, you know, survived. He had to make a decision. Hey, do I stay here and survive and die, or do I try to help myself? You know, so he he chose to uh, to try to survive. You know, he had to walk like almost a mile from where he was to uh, the the, uh, the road, the real road, where he could get assistance. You know, and he walked out, and uh, and uh, some some tourists, you know driving by and stopped to help him and he became our first live witness you know so we got a composite a photo composite from from him you know we got the description of the, of the white pickup truck no no tag just the truck mm-hmm. and a description of his car you know that sets up the case in, in march for what happened in april so well, like a week before we move on to that i just want to interject here for everyone who screams that open carry you know does anything to deter crime here we have two instances of people out actively engaged in target shooting mm-hmm. who are robbed and yep. one murder, one attempt murder. Yeah. Yep. For, for a real evil person, the fact that you've got a firearm or weapon yeah. is, is it going to be? I tell you what, though, I mean, it, it, that's a good point, Lee, because, you know, I hadn't really considered that. Two, two people, armed people that were, were attacked. Okay. They, they were, they had, op- they had guns, guns <laughs> in their hands. Okay. And they yeah. were okay. Yeah. I mean, granted, they were both ambushed from behind, right. but still, though, I mean, it's like, wow, you know, I hadn't really considered that. That's a good point. But uh, Colossus survived. He was very lucky. So, um, so about a week later, uh, at, at, a, at the Barnett Bank at 136th Street, South Dixie Highway, uh, there was a, another robbery. Uh, we had a law enforcement witness who was uh, driving up the cash check, and he, he says when he's pulling up, he sees two two males running out of the bank wearing ski masks, gloves, and, and carrying long barrel weapons. So he said, "Hey, you know, he hunkered down, became a good witness. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, I I consider myself to be a, a Clint Eastwood, you know, but a handgun against two guys with rifles, nah, you know, yeah. I think I'm going to be a good witness. You know, just kind of <laughs> hunkered down behind that dashboard. You know? Yeah." So that's what he did, and, and you know what? He verified the tag on on the on the car. It was Kalaus's car. Mm-hmm. So we had a confirmed, you know, a confirmation that these guys were the were the bank robbers. You know, so, so that sets the stage up. Okay, that happened in the middle of uh, of March. So Gordon McNeil had been uh, had gone to firearms training on April tenth on Thursday. He was out there with uh, Ben Grogan, and um, he um, was kicking the, the case around with with Ben. And said, "Hey Ben, why don't we set up a surveillance tomorrow?" And uh, Ben said, "Sure, Gordon. I mean, what's up? And what do you know?" And uh, ben, uh, uh, Gordon uh, told Ben and said, "Hey Ben, you know, it's been three weeks since this guy's hit. Okay, the last time they hit, they only got eight thousand dollars." Whereas the previous hits have been forty thousand, fifty thousand dollars. You know, the last robbery three weeks ago was only eight thousand dollars. He said, and tomorrow, maybe some of your listeners won't know this term, but tomorrow is payday Friday. Okay, I mean for us old timers, that that means something, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he said, tomorrow's payday Friday. It's been three weeks, and they only got eight thousand dollars last time. Says so I'm telling you, I have a hunch. These guys are going to hit tomorrow. I think they're due. And that is what precipitated the surveillance. Just, uh, it's called intuitive policing, okay? Mm-hmm. 
your intuition, your experience, your evidence, you know, I said, hey, let's run a surveillance. So Ben calls the office. I was in the office of, of the squad at the time, you know, and then uh, call comes in and says, hey, uh, we're going to run a surveillance tomorrow morning. Uh, try to see how many guys can, can help us, uh, you know, pass the word around, ha have them be in the office at seven, and then we'll stage in, uh, in southwest Miami. So that's how the case started, you know, and that no, no informant, no tip, no nothing. It was just a hunch. You know, so, so, um, it, uh, I mean, you know, fate, you know, time and chance, you know, one of those things, you know, so. Yeah. For all of you in the audience that are under the age of 30, there used to be these things called paychecks and they actually <laughs> gave them to you on paper, <laughs> like every other Friday or the last Friday of the month or whatever. And you actually had to physically take that paycheck <laughs> to a bank. Yeah. And exactly. the banks will be flush with cash on those days because when yeah. people would go in and deposit their check, they yeah. would actually get cash back. Yeah, because you didn't have these things called debit cards back yeah. then, or you, no, you couldn't no, no. you couldn't pay with your cell phone because cell phones weren't a common thing <laughs> no. at, at the time, I and people actually walked around with cash money. So that's what he's yeah. talking about, Payday Friday. Yeah, exactly. No. Could we uh, could we take a time out, please? Sure, sure. Okay, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. All right, and we're back. Yes, sir. So. Uh, the next day, uh, April 11th, you know, uh, 14 agents, uh, no, sorry, 11 agents from the squad showed up and then he, uh, we had uh, corralled three agents from the Homestead uh, RA to help us. You know, Homestead is, uh, I don't know, 30 miles south of Miami. So we had a total of 14 agents uh, for the surveillance and we just divvied up the agents, you know, uh, in, in four uh, main locations where, uh, I think every location that we were surveilling had been robbed at least one time before. So we figured, hey, you know, I mean, there's only so many banks down there. There's a lot of businesses, but only so many banks. So the idea was to have a like a static surveillance and then maybe also a, a rolling surveillance going back and forth. And we were looking for the stolen Monte Carlo and any white pickup truck that you might see with two guys in it. You know, so that, that was that was the case, you know. So Honestly, I have to look people in the eye right here and say, hey, I thought the probability of these two guys showing up was like 10%, mm -hmm. you know, at best. Okay, because we had nothing. Yep. We had zero, you know. <laughs> you know, it was just a, literally a hunch. And I think, well, you know what? I got yeah. nothing better to do. I'll come out here and help the, help the squad, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to be you know, labeled a slacker or something like that, you know. So, I, you know, I was out there, but I honestly, truly, you know, uh, didn't think anything was going to happen, you know. And, and I, I tell people that's called complacency. And, you know, it wasn't negligence, but it was, hey, I'm out here, nothing will happen. You know, I, you know, it's kind of like, what's complacency? Well, I, I always do it this way or nothing ever happens. That's complacency. You know, it's like, yeah, nothing ever happens here. Don't worry about it. You know, or not, I always do it this way. This is the way we're going to no. <laughs> know that that's you get, you get into a rut, you get into, you know, that's yeah. what complacency is, you know, so, so I honestly didn't, uh, didn't expect anything to happen. And boy, oh boy, was I mistaken at about 925 in the morning, you know, when Ben Grogan calls out on the radio, attention, all units, uh, we're behind a black vehicle, two door, Florida tag NTJ 891. I'm thinking, <laughs> I could not believe it. You know, I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. uh, my partner, John Hanley, had already put the car in gear. And uh, when, when Ben called out, he was already 
six blocks north of it. We were, we were at the northernmost mm -hmm. spot on the surveillance. He was already six blocks north of us. He had gone six blocks, you know, to, to try, try to catch. He was probably playing catch up, trying to verify the tag. And it wasn't until he got to 130th Street that he verified the tag. So, and then after that, um, it wasn't a high speed chase. I mean, we, we had, there were some high speeds catching up. But uh, once we caught up, it was like just a regular old you drive, you know, on a, on a city highway, city street, you know. But when they went off the highway and went onto the residential roads, man, it became like, whoa, this is not good. You know, it, everything went to like 10, 15 miles an hour. You had four cars driving, you know, bumper to bumper, 10 or 15 miles an hour. You, they knew something was up. You know, so <clears throat> my biggest fear at the time was they kind of went around in a big circle. They went from uh, South Dixie Highway, which is, which is US-1. They went uh, east. They made a circle and a circle back to the west. And I thought they were they were going to get back on US one. My biggest concern was that they were going to we were going to get involved in a running gun battle on US one on the highway, okay? Because these guys had a propensity to shoot. Out of the six robberies they had uh, that we confirmed uh, were linked to them, five involved shootings of some kind. Okay, so I'm thinking, wow, you know, these guys are these guys, they will not. Be reluctant to fire. You use civilians as as a shield. You know that's way before human shields became a thing. But I had I had I had visions of them running in and out of traffic. You know, using other cars as, as cover, you know, trying to get trying to get get away. So, and amazingly, they didn't do that. They turned they turned south on a residential road, and that was amazing. I mean, it was really we were really lucky in that respect. You know, because there was a school about three blocks to the east. And then it was like another church complex uh, farther south, you know. It, it could have been disastrous, you know, but, you know, yeah. I guess luck, luck turned, turned in our favor, you know. So, so we're headed down 82nd Avenue, and then uh, we stopped going from 5 and 10 miles an hour, and then, it, I mean, the RPM started going up because Ben put the, the uh, police light on the dash, hit the siren, and then the, it, all bets are off, you know. I mean, it just became a... A, a a drag race with the crashing and banging and stuff. You know, we're trying to force them force them into a a, a dirt area, like a what do you call it, a medium mm -hmm. or a median side of the high side of the road yeah. up against the wall. <clears throat> Obviously, they weren't cooperating. You know, they, yeah. were, they, they were trying to escape. You know, so but uh, eventually we ended up crashing into some civilian cars at Eighty uh, Second Avenue and. Uh, and uh, 120th Street, you know, so, um, um, I mean, 122nd Street. And, and then that's the, the setup for the shootout, you know, uh, that uh, duplex right there. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, the rest of it's kind of complicated. I, I, don't, I don't know if you want to ask me individual <laughs> questions or. Um, well, let's, let's go over what, what firearms were the UHAs you're carrying. Okay, uh, that's a good question because I've been asked, why aren't you wearing it? Why aren't you, why aren't you wearing, carrying a 44 Magnum? It's like, well, you know what, though, <laughs> guys, there's these things called regulations, regulations, rules and regulations, you know. And I tell people, I said, hey, I was carrying everything that I was legally authorized to carry. And at, the, at that time, FBI agents were only authorized to carry 38 caliber re revolvers. Okay. And uh, we could only carry 12 gauge shotguns. 
Okay, you could carry any uh, any variety of model of 38. You could carry a model 60, a model 19, a, you know, a model, uh, uh, you know, 10, all different types of models, you know, uh, Smith & Wesson uh, 38 caliber uh, revolvers. But I, I could not carry anything different. And I, I could only carry a Remington 12-gauge shotgun. Now, we had five SWAT agents with us, and they, they were trained to a, a higher standard. They were authorized to carry uh, semi-automatic uh, high-capacity pistols. They they were uh, uh, in nine-millimeter cap uh, caliber. And then the SWAT guys again. There's, there's five of them there. One of them had a, an M16. The other one had an MP5. And then the rest of the agents had 12-gauge shotguns each. Huh. Okay. But as it turns out, there's that time and chance again. Uh, none of the heavy weapons, the especially the M16 none of them showed up to, to the shootout in time because they were in a different location uh, during the surveillance. You know, they, they were farther south in the, in the line the, the line of assignments. Okay, so by the time they actually got to the shooting, the shooting was over. So let, let me take a, back, a step back and sure. from the time ben, ben said attention on units to the time he said felony car stop, three minutes, okay. That's as much time as you had to formulate a plan, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's very, very <laughs> dynamic because, I mean, you're moving, you're moving in front mm -hmm. of a shopping center. You're moving in front of a, of, of a park. You're moving in yeah. front of a post office, okay? They make a turn, okay, you're in, in a residential area. So you're trying to formulate a plan and you're trying to rally troops to, to assist you. So, I mean, you're planning, planning, and things keep changing, changing, changing. But when he said felony car stop, that was a total of three minutes, you know. And I tell people, especially in the FBI, I said, guys, you know, the FBI has changed. You cannot do anything anymore without an ops plan. Right. Okay, you got to have, and I'm sure PDs are the same way now. You, know? you have to have an ops plan. And I tell them, I said, hey, you know, guys, back in the old days, man, your ops plan was like, hey, you got a phone call, you got 30 seconds to do something. Okay, mm -hmm. and in this case, we had three, three minutes to, to form, formulate an ops plan. And a lot of people uh, either don't know or seem to forget that we worked hand in glove with the Metro Dade County PD. Some of our units had Metro radios in them. So we were calling Metro for backup. I mean, definitely calling for, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, kind of like that, uh, that line in the movie, The Terminator, Terminator 2, when they said, hey, how many cops are out there? And he says, oh, I think all of them. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what we were doing. Yeah. Call for backup. How many do you want? Bring them all. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and so, wake up night shift and get them here too. Yeah. You know, so, but, you know, we were just calling, you know, for, yeah. calling for backup. So, but the agent with the radio, he's, he's in a car by himself. He's got an FBI radio on one hand. He's got a, mm -hmm. a Metro radio in the other, and he's trying to drive at high speed. Okay. So it's not, not the best plan. You right. know what I'm saying? So, he 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 uh, vectored the 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 police as, as best he could. Plus, you know our lack of communication, you know, because we were trying to maintain radio discipline. Yeah. You know, I wanted to say something, but I I didn't because Ben was the eye. Ben was the eye. He was the, the mm -hmm. case agent, and I was just leaving it up to Ben. You know, it's like mm -hmm. hey, you know, I even tried to urge him. You know, I I, I mean, when I think back on it, I think they would call it now. They would call it snarky. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I kept trying to get him to say something I say, hey ben i'm right behind you what give me a cross street you know give me a cross yeah. street so you can tell the other guys where we are you know yeah and he 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 responded to that you know but 
that that he was dead silent because he was focused on on the threat. You know, so so anyway, Metro was called. Metro responded, but you know, obviously trying to vector them in exactly to where we were because once right. once Ben uh, said felony car stop, all communication stopped. Everybody was focusing on driving and, and mm -hmm. crashing the cars and cars spinning and you know, you know doing everything. You know, that it's like a roller yeah. derby. I mean, uh, or a, a, a uh, what do you call those those crash uh, those, those crash derbies? Demolition derbies. Demolition derbies. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, all, all radio talk stopped at that point. Yeah. You know, so, but uh, Metro was called, you know, and uh, eventually Metro Metro did respond. You know, uh, it, they were they were uh, in the they were actually you know set up a perimeter and the whole thing. You know, so everything was good. Um, but the agents, the SWAT, only the SWAT agents had the exotic weapons, the nine millimeters, the M16, and the MP5. You know, so, um, Do I remember correctly that uh, one of the guys that had either the M16 or the MP5 had gotten out of his car and was like trying to interview a witness from a previous No, robbery? you know what happened? You know, that, that's a good, you've got a good memory. There were three incidents that happened, time and chance. Okay, at my at my location, 130th Street. One of the agents, there was three agents there. Uh, Steve Warner. He said, "Hey guys, I'm going to go in and check with the bank manager." So he goes in and checks the door, and the bank's closed. It's nine o'clock, and he knocked on on the door, and they came there. Sir, the bank doesn't open till nine thirty. So I mean. Uh, that, that was unusual, you know, because most banks opened at nine. This bank opened at nine thirty. So he showed him his credit. He said, "Hey, we're the FBI. You know, uh, we're doing a surveillance here. Can I talk to the bank manager?" And they said, "No." So he said, "Okay." So he gets back in his car. He tells us, "Hey, I'm back in the car." He said, "The, the bank manager wouldn't talk to us." So I said, "He said, hey, I, I, I'm fine. I'm going to go gas up, you know, before we we start, you know, getting heavy into the day." So he runs off to gas up. Gets to the gas station, says, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be off the air." There's a code sign for that. Uh -huh. And as soon as he goes off the air, we get a call from the office, and the office says, "Hey, uh, you know, uh, unit, whatever his name, his number was, I forget what it was, unit twelve. He said, uh, "Come in." And I knew unit twelve, you know. So I said, "Hey, this is uh, unit eighty-eight. Uh, unit twelve is, you know, out of service. What do you need?" And the uh, office said, hey, the bank manager called the office to verify Unit 12's, Steve's uh, employment. So we verified it. So now the bank manager wants to talk to Steve. So when he comes back in service, can you tell him to go back to the bank? So we said, okay, I'll take care of it. So Steve comes back on the air, said, hey, Steve, uh, the bank manager verified your employment, blah, blah, blah. She wants to talk to you now. She goes, oh, okay. So he goes back to, to the bank. He says, I'm at the bank, I'm, I'm out of service. He, he turns the car off and goes in. That was at my location. At the location south of, of me, 136th Street, the uh, agent with the MP5 notifies his his little group, says, hey, listen, I, I need to go to the bathroom. You know, uh, I need to, uh, to I'll be 10-7. I'm going to go into this, uh, this McDonald's or whatever. About, I don't know, 30 seconds later, in a, in a different part of the surveillance, Bobby Ross, the agent with the uh, M16, tells his guys, he says, hey, man, I, I have to go make a library stop. I'll be out, you know, and they said, okay. So he goes out to the bathroom. Terry goes out to the bathroom, and Steve is out talking to the bank manager. Okay, the two guys with the heaviest, the heavy, heaviest armed agents 
are, are in, in the bathroom, you know. Mm-hmm. And then Steve Warner had a 12-gauge shotgun in his car, you know. So, I mean, t- three separate locations, three separate reasons for, for you know, uh, being out of service, you know. Time and chance happened, you know, so. Do you want to get into the backgrounds of the two bad guys, or we want to leave them dead? No, I mean, I, uh, right off the top of my head, you know, uh, one was uh, Michael Lee Platt, and the other one was William R. Maddox. Okay, they were both uh, my age at the time. You know, the, the one was born in '51, the other one was born in '53, which is my my generation. Uh, they were they were both military guys. Uh, one, uh, I think it was uh, Maddox, served in the Marine Corps for a couple of years, and then he got out, and then he joined the Army for four years. That's where he met his buddy Platt, and they were uh, 101st Airborne. They were trained in the 101st Airborne, and I always tell people, I say, "Hey guys, you know, but they weren't slouches." Right. Okay, 101st Airborne. Is, <laughs> that's that's a that's a real deal, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so. You know, they, they were well-trained, you know, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, para-jumpers or paratroopers or, you know, whatever the, I don't know whether they're special forces, special forces, but 101st Airborne, they're, they're definitely hard combat people, you know, so uh, neither one of them served in Vietnam, you know, so they had no combat experience, you know, so, uh, but they were, they were buddies, they served together for almost four years, and then uh, Maddox, I'm trying to figure out who got out first, I think they got about, they got out about the same time. You know, so they went their separate ways afterward, afterwards. Um, uh, Maddox went to Ohio with his uh, wife's family, and Platt went to Miami with his wife's family. And, you know, they were separated, you know, uh, for three or four years, but they, they kept in touch. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Maddox's wife dies of mysterious causes in Ohio. Uh, that happened about 19... 19- I think it was like 1984. Uh, somebody's uh, slashed her throat, almost cut her head off, and stabbed her 12, 12 15 times. Mysterious circumstances. So, so, you know. <laughs> and of course, Maddox had an airtight alibi. Of course, his uh, his in-laws. He had called his father-in-law over to help move a piece of furniture that he said he couldn't. He was having difficulty with. And he, when the father. When when his wife's father was uh, when the father-in-law was interviewed by the cops, they said he he was a little suspicious. Why why would he call me to move a piece of furniture that he could easily have moved himself? It was just odd, you know. It's like, hey, can you help me move this chair? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's one thing to say, hey, can you help me move this couch? Yeah. You know, that's one thing. But can you help me move this chair? You know, so he had a he had a witness that he was home. You know, mm-hmm. So which uh, the father-in-law thought was suspicious, you know, but no, I mean, uh, somebody butchered his wife, man. I mean, really just like slashed it bad, you know, so. And then uh, after that, he was free, I guess. He sold the house, sold their property, took his child and uh, moved to Miami to be with his buddy, uh, Platt. And like a year later, Platt's wife commits suicide under mysterious circumstances, you know, so. Um, if you know anything about suicide in women, uh, this lady who's a petite, like five foot two, uh, committed suicide by sticking a shotgun in her mouth and, and pulled the trigger. It's like, yeah, I think most women don't want to do that. <laughs> no, <laughs> just, you just yeah. explode your head up, you know. It's yeah. like, 
you know, even even in death, women are vain, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm going to get calls on that. I didn't mean that yeah. that way, you know. But yeah. it was just odd that a woman sticks a shotgun in her mouth yeah. and, and uh, kills herself. Yeah. It, it doesn't happen. You know, so. So Metro Dade always thought that was suspicious as hell, you know, but they really yeah. they couldn't prove. I mean, they, they did the uh, the the residue test on on, on Platt's hands. No, no, yeah. nothing. You know, no fingerprints on the gun. You know, it's like it was only her prints. It's just weird. You know, so yeah. So anyway, uh, they they started a new life with uh, new girlfriends and stuff. You know, so. We speculate that they were having trouble making ends meet, you know, so that's yeah. when they got into robbery. And uh, I tell people, I say, hey, what a better cover in Miami, Florida than to have a lawn service. All you do is get those magnetic signs, put them, put them on your door, and you're a lawn service. You know, these guys ne never never did lawns, you know. Yeah. <laughs> they, maybe they did a couple, you know, to start, but, you know, the rest of the time they were just, what a perfect cover. You're driving around neighborhoods. Yeah. You know, you're driving around, you know, with a lawn service, you got a couple of, you know, old lawnmowers in the back of your pickup truck. You can drive anywhere, you know, yeah. uh, just a routine thing, you know, so. And we speculate that they were just having trouble, uh, trouble making ends meet, you know, and they got into robbery. All right. All right. So we're on this side street and uh, the bumper cars has taken place and we've come to a stop. Yep. And that's when the firefight begins. It started pretty much as soon as the car stopped, you know. Right. Uh, Gordon McNeil jumps out of his car. Ben Grogan jumps out of his car. Ben, ben is directly behind the, the stolen Monte Carlo. And Gordon is off to the, to the uh, driver's side. They both jump out. They're yelling, FBI, police, come out with your hands up. You know, their response was, pop, 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 pow. You know, yeah. that kind of reminds me yeah. of that movie, The Gladiator. Yeah. In the beginning of the movie, they say no. You know, when, <laughs> when the messenger comes back without his head, yeah. you know, they say no. You know, so yeah. <laughs> that's they said yeah. no too. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I, open fire. <laughs> yeah, I want to back up for for one second here. As the cars are still moving, I seem to recall something in your presentation. Um, where one of the bad guys was pointing a weapon at you and one of the FBI agents ran the car and that's what's kept him that, being able that's, to That's true, you know, uh, during uh, the sequence of, of the, uh, the, the, the chase and, and the crashing, the car I was in, John Hanlon was driving and I'm the passenger is like this with the, this is the, the stolen Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. Maddox is driving and Platt's passenger. I actually got, I, I, I was so close to him, you know, I, if, if the windows had not been rolled up, I could have touched him with my right hand. That's how close we were. And I'm glaring at him, he's glaring at me, and I'm trying to get the shotgun up from between my legs, but it was way too long, you know, so. Uh -huh. I got tunnel vision up to the driver's face, okay, and I, never, I didn't see anything else past him. You know? So at that point, unbeknownst to me, the passenger in the stolen Monte Carlo, Platt had the long one. Uh, the assault rifle, the, the uh, Mini-14, came up like this, and he goes in this fashion past the, the driver's head and is aiming the assault rifle at me. I never saw it because I'm, I'm tunnel vision into the driver. Manauzi, Richard Manauzi, uh, who was behind the, the Monte Carlo, saw that, and he goes, oh, crap, you know, I need to take their attention off of Ed and, and John. Mm -hmm and you know focus it somewhere else so he rams him from behind you know that's that's when he just slammed him 
and he propelled the car forward and, and we lost all contact with the car. So we, we uh, skidded, uh, you know, out of control and hit a wall. Uh, um, I guess now will be a good time to mention your book that gives a very detailed explanation of everything mm -hmm. that takes place in the gunfight. Right. Uh, mention, mention your book and, and where people can oh, find okay. it. It's uh, FBI Miami Firefight, uh, Five Minutes to Change the Bureau. And people say, well, why did you write the book? I said, well, I wrote the book for several reasons. You know, number one, it's a pretty damn interesting story. It's an mm -hmm. interesting case, okay? Yeah. And uh, the second reason, or maybe the first reason I wrote it, is because back after, after the incident happened, there was so much misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. So many people had so many wrong details that it was like maddening. I mean, I actually would have to go to, uh, I mean, I actually went to police conferences like in, starting in 1990. And I would give the actual facts of the investigation as I knew them from the crime scene and from my, my being there. And people said, no, no, you know, that's not the way it happens. <laughs> I said, dude, I was there. <laughs> Yeah. No, you guys had a tip and you weren't prepared, you know. <laughs> you should have been prepared, you know. I'm yeah. We had no tip. There was no tip, you know. So, uh, I mean, so, um, I mean, I, 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 I fought the battle for like 10 years, you know. I'm thinking, yeah. you know, I mean, I, cause just to set the record straight, you know, but I'm thinking, man, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I decided to write the book, you know. So, uh -huh. and it took me, uh, I actually wrote the book when I retired in 04, but uh, nobody would publish it. You know, in a, a lot of, uh, uh, I don't know, publishing homes or publishing houses or mm -hmm. whatever they, they call themselves, I, I got rejected left and right. So I said, huh. I put it on the back burner, you know, and then I, I, I brought it back. And then I, nobody, again, nobody would touch it. You know, I'm thinking, okay, so I'll self-publish, you know, so that that's how, that's how I ended up, you know, getting the book out there, you know, but, I, you know, any... Any any publicity was good, you know, is good right. because you know, it'll help me get the the word out. You know, so, right. um, but you can get my book, uh, FBI Miami Firefight, uh, um, through my website, uh, sure. www or through Amazon. You know, so, right. uh, but it's it's available. You know. Yeah, I'll put a link to it uh, in the, in the show notes and and when we put it out online. Um, and because I know there's going to be all sorts of questions that people that are listening to this have that we might not get into. Oh, no, I, I mean, wanted, I wanted to bring up the book. No, so I mean, people, no, it, yeah. if we if we go through the whole story in detail, yeah. this will be a four hour podcast. Right. So, right. Uh, but, you know, that's why I wrote the book, you know, right. because the book keeps it very succinct, very, mm -hmm. um, you know, tight, you I, know, so. A couple of things I do want to ask about specifically. Uh, I remember from your presentation where you talked about how your memory was you fired four rounds from the shotgun. Right, correct. But the evidence indicates you fired five. Correct, correct. Did you and that, that was brought to my attention, you know, by a prosecutor. Say, hey, but wait a minute. You say you only fired five rounds, four shots? I said, yeah. He said, so he showed me a, a crime scene photo. He says, there's, there's five shot casings here. I said, oh, okay. You know, and I tell people, you know, especially officers, I say, hey, you know, there is a, a thing out there called traumatic amnesia. You know, uh, people that have car crashes, boom, you know, they get knocked, knocked uh, silly or mm -hmm. people that get knocked unconscious, you know, either on purpose or by accident, you either fall or someone hits you. Um, if you've ever interviewed anybody who's who's had head trauma like that, mm -hmm. you know, you'll you'll know right away. Yeah. 
just some people say, hey, man, I don't know what happened. 15 minutes before the incident, I can't tell you what I did or where I was or, or what happened, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's the same thing with me. You know, after, after I was uh, after I was shot, I was shot in the left arm. I was shot right through here. And then I also took a, a grazing head wound here onto to the forehead. Just it, it just went like this. Yeah. So that uh, I'm assuming it was that and just a, the, the supersonic blast. Uh, it, it deafened me. I mean, I, I, I couldn't hear anything. And all I, all I heard was a ringing in my ears, you know. So, I mean, to say that this, this round didn't ring my bell, point, you know, <laughs> it did ring my bell, you know. So, I, you know, I, I attribute it to, to that hit, that injury that I can't remember. I can remember everything else almost. Yeah. But I cannot, I mean, that's, it's pretty significant that you fire a shotgun yeah. blast and you don't remember that. You know, so. yeah. you know one, funny you meant bring up the, the traumatic amnesia. Uh, I attended four science institutes force analysis class several years ago. Mm-hmm. And they're going through all the, you know, your recall might not be perfect. And they're giving all the reasons why and everything like that. And I raised my hand and, and, and I forget which presenter was, was up at the time. And he's like, yesterday, you know, asked your question. I said, how would all this apply to sexual assault victims? And he kind of sat there for a second, leaned back. It was all the same things would apply to a sexual assault victim. Mm-hmm. And so it just, that's one of the things that's, that's kind of haunted me over the years is how many rape cases haven't been prosecuted or rapists were acquitted because the victim is actually telling the truth as they remember it but it doesn't match up with physical evidence yeah. and it's and it's and it's shown oh the victim's not credible etc and that has just always bothered me uh since, well since you know what like and, and that's a very 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 good question very valid point you know because if, if if you've been around people that have been traumatized you know a car crash can be a, a trauma Mm-hmm. Okay, a, 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 an assault can be a trauma, a rape can be a trauma, you know, a gunshot can be a, a trauma. Anything that, that affects you, you know, physically and mentally, you know, can have an effect on your memory. I mean, there's no yeah. doubt, you know. Right. I don't know how much time we have. I've got as much I, time as you want. I, I, I want to tell you a story about a friend sure. of mine. I was in Washington field office and I, I was assigned uh, to a squad on the 12th floor, you know, and, and I used, usually came in at six in the morning, you know, and I came in one morning, you know, and there's somebody sitting at, at a desk next to mine, which used to be empty. And I'm thinking, I said, I know this guy. I said, Don, what are you doing here? He said, hey, Ed. He said, I just got transferred in from, from Johnson City, Tennessee, or wherever the heck he was, you know, or Missouri or something. You know. I said, well, congratulations. He said, what brings you here? And he just kind of made light of it, you know. But then as time went on, he told me why he was transferred. He was transferred because uh, as a disciplinary transfer. And I said, what? He said, what happened? He said, he and his partner show up at a, uh, a fugitive's house, a parent's house. And they get out of their car. They park right in front of the house, which is a no-no now, you know, so. The, the guy get on the on the front door side gets out of the house and he takes so he starts taking incoming gunfire from the house so he runs over behind the car the driver gets out one of them is behind the engine block the other guy's behind the trunk and they're exchanging fire 
Okay, everything's going pretty smoothly other than the, the shooting. You know? <laughs> yeah. So my friend Don said, you know, he was involved in a gunfight. And, you know, at the end, you know, the guy, I don't know whether he was wounded or, or his parents talked to him, you know, say, hey, stop shooting, you idiot, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it ended, you know, they called for backup. The, the sheriff shows up and they, they arrested, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the fugitive, you know. So, so internal affairs, FBI internal affairs comes over to investigate, you know, that, you know, they had the local PD investigate, but then internal affairs comes in to follow up, you know, as we like to say in the, in the FBI, internal affairs comes in to paint at the wounded, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the circular firing squad forms here. Yeah. Yeah. So they asked my friend, they asked my friend Don, he said, how many shots did you fire? And he said, I fired three shots, sir. And he said, no, I say again? He said, I fired three shots. So they left the room, they conferred. You know, it's like they came back in and said, okay, uh, maybe you didn't understand the question. <laughs> uh, how many shots did you fire at this gunfight at this address at this time? You know, he says, I fired three shots, sir. So they said, we don't believe you. And he goes, what do you mean you don't believe me? So they pulled out a photograph and they had a forensic photo. And on his side of the car, there were 12 shell casings, yep. thir thir uh, 38 caliber shell casings. He fired 12 shots, reloaded an additional six shots into his, into his revolver and came up to address the target for, for the third time. And he says, that in, of course, the internal affairs, you know, they, they're sharpening their bayonets. They're saying, you're lying. Why are you lying to us? You know, here's the evidence. 12 shell casing. You're telling us three. You're a liar. You're a liar. You know, so, you know, just, he said, hey, I remember firing three shots. Okay. So they said, hey, you know, you're a liar. And so, so they transferred him from, from where he was to Washington field office so he could be next to headquarters so they could keep an eye on him or something. I don't know. So, and then he said, hey, you know what? He thought about it, thought about it, thought about it. You know, and he goes, you know what? The, I, when I asked my, my, my buddy, my partner, he said, how many shots did you fire? He said, I fired three shots. Okay. And for some reason, you know, when he was shooting, you know, your, your, your yeah. fight or flight response, you know, does weird things to your, your, mm -hmm. your vision and your hearing and stuff. He, he probably didn't hear a single shot he fired, but yet he heard his partner fired three shots. Those three yep. shots registered in his brain. Yep. So he said, I fired three shots. Okay, he never he never realized that he fired mm -hmm. six, dumped, loaded six, fired six, dumped, and yep. then came up and loaded six more. So, and of course, OPR, the the, bayonet, the, the, wound, the wound, wounded bayoneting people, you know, they said, oh, you're lying, pal. You know, yeah. so they, they transferred him and his family to Washington, you know, <laughs> and it, it, that, that uh, cued something in my brain. I'm thinking, why, uh, why, why did this happen? I mean, why, how, yeah. how did this, you know, and after it happened to me, I'm thinking, holy cow, man, there's, there's yeah. a lot more in, out there that people don't realize, you know, trauma. Yeah. And, and you raise a valid point. What about all these rape victims, you know, and, 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 and stuff like that, you know, that, you know, just people either forget information or, or it do doesn't register, you know, yep. who knows, who knows what the heck. You know, so. Yeah, it's funny, the, the, 
I'll call it the criminal justice system for lack of a better term, has historically always given more weight to eyewitness testimony over any other testimony. And it's probably the least reliable. Yeah. Of, yeah. of the available evidence. Mm -hmm. Or, or yeah. types of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's something, it's something for, for people to, to keep in mind, you know, and when I, when I was on active duty, I always used to tell people, managers, I said, supervisors, you know, uh, assistant chiefs, chiefs, mm -hmm. DAs, and, and in our case, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys, I said, hey, just because an agent says, hey, I fired three shots and you find 12 shell casings doesn't make yeah. them a liar. Right. Okay, because I gave him, I gave him the example of me. I said I fired five shotgun rounds, but I, you know, and there's five casings, mm -hmm. but I only remember firing four shots. Okay, and you know, I, I, I talked to a group of uh, civil rights attorneys because uh, that's back when when the mm -hmm. Department of Justice was really going after cops, you know, for mm -hmm. excessive use of force or whatever. Yeah. And and I and I talked to one uh, particular uh, assistant U.S. attorney. I said, hey, you know, I'm telling you that, you know, this is what happened. I fired five shots, but I only remember firing four. So does that make me a liar? You know, and this one hard ass said, yes. He said, I said, well, okay, well, how am I lying? Because, you know, I, yeah. I, I'm not, I am not going to put on a, on a statement that I fired five shots when I only remember four, because I'm right. not going to let people put words in my mouth, Right. you know, for the stuff that I, I, don't recall, you know, I mean, that's that, it's that simple. And, and that, that's what I tell other officers. Don't let anybody put words in your mouth because, you, you know, I mean, you can see the evidence after the fact that up here, you know, you just have to go with what you got, you know, somebody need, needs to reconcile those, those two, those two, two differences, you know, and the, you know what the assistant U.S. attorney says, well, he says, I would take your testimony as suspicious at best, you know, because, yep. okay, <laughs> I know where yep. you stand, you know, yep. so. But anyway, I, I digress too much. Sure. So, um, now you were injured. You had a bullet wound to your left arm, so you fired the shotgun single-handedly, right? Right, correct. Had you had any training in that technique at all, or did you make that you know, up under the fly? I've been I've been asked that question a hundred times, you know, and I had no training whatsoever. You know, and I, okay. I didn't see it in the movie. I didn't read it in the book. But I kept thinking and pondering, and you know, trying to come up with an answer. Okay, and I told my wife wow, like three or four years ago, I said, man, I had, I had a eureka moment, you know, yeah. I said, Hey, you know what? I just remember something. When I was going through the application process in 1979, the FBI had what was called a trigger test. I don't know whether the departments had it at all. Mm -hmm. You used to have to hold a, uh, a standard issue yeah. revolver up at, at eye level like this mm -hmm. one handed and then pull the trigger on a revolver. Yeah as many times as you could for for a minute or 30 i think it was 30 seconds you know yeah. so you know if you scored you know x number you know you had enough hand strength you know same thing with your left hand okay mm -hmm. and the other test was we had to hold a 12 gauge shotgun up to our shoulder like this okay up tight like this and then you had to hold it one-handed you had to put the your support hand down like this and you had to hold the shotgun up one-handed like this for 30 seconds, okay? And it wasn't until I thought about that uh, process through at, at the, the, recruiting, the recruiting process, that's the only time I ever held a shotgun one-handed 
mm-hmm. okay, and and uh, uh, holding it for thirty seconds, you know, and and the agent was was watching, make sure I, I, I kept it steady. In other, in other words, it wasn't the shotgun <laughs> wasn't going like like oh I can't hold it, I can't yeah. hold it, you know. And I remember asking the agent, "This is just so bizarre." Yeah. I said, "I said, do you you guys are really doing this?" And he said, "Yeah, why?" He said, "Who would ever shoot a shotgun one handed?" Anyway? <laughs> you know? And he said, "Hey," he said, "You never know," you know. And I remember that time; it, it just struck me like forty years later. I yeah. had this conversation with this agent at an Alexandria field office, you know, yeah. the process that it was a, a strength test. You know? And then I realized it's like, oh my God, that's probably where I came from. You know, I mean, I, 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 I don't know what else to say. You have to be careful about asking yourself those questions. I was driving from Valdosta, Georgia to Albany, Georgia mm-hmm. uh, for a football game one time. And I passed through the tiny town of Sylvester and there was a brand new hotel that had just been opened right alongside the highway in Sylvester and had the grand opening thing, everything. And I left, I said, who will build a hotel in Sylvester, Georgia? Like, who's going to stop here and spend the night? And on the way back from Albany to Valdosta, my car broke down directly <laughs> across the street from that. Guess where I spent the night that night? <laughs> you were probably guest number one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that hotel was built just for me because I was the one that spent the night there. <laughs> That's funny. That's karma. That's <laughs> yeah. karma for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, how you show up places and people. Oh no, no, that's not what happened, and and everything. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how certain things get into. Uh, I'll just say collective knowledge for for lack of a way to better way to say it and that people accept that and like one of the the things from the uh uh the new hall incident you know people claim that the officers or the troopers were putting the empty shell casings in their pockets well when you look at the crime scene photos their empty shell casings are on the ground so they obviously yeah. weren't putting them in their pockets but that gets yeah. repeated over yeah. and over and over and over again uh, you already mentioned that some people claim that you guys had a tip when You've clearly stated that's not the case. What are some other things that, like, you've been told about the incident? Like, oh no, this happened, but clearly didn't. Well, you know, what one of the biggest things was was the, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the tip, you know, and then and then mm-hmm. somebody else said, hey, you know, uh, uh, you you had a, a telephone call, you know, mm-hmm. one, one physical person giving us a tip, and the other one was a telephone call. You know, it's like. Uh, you guys should have had a SWAT team there because you knew something was going to happen. It's like, dude, I mean, that, that's not yeah. true at all. Absolutely yeah. not at all. But the other thing is, you know, which, which bothered me was the fact that, Hey, listen, you guys should have had the, the PD out there with you. And you know what, that that's one of the, one of the ones that hurts most, I think, you know, because man, you know, FBI robbery and Metro robbery. And we, we worked like this, man. We were like, Every, I mean, every day. I mean, we saw mm-hmm. we saw the same detectives, you know, every day at Red Roberts, you know. So there's a, I, I mentioned it in my book. Uh, we called robbery uh, the night before and said, hey, we're going to be out on, 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 uh, on the highway, South Dixie Highway, uh, tomorrow morning from 9, 9 to 2. Can you, can you join us? Can you help us? 
you know, because, you know, you guys, you know, have, have, have their different radio systems, you have different informants and so on and so forth. You know? And they said, Hey man, thanks for asking, but we cannot do it tomorrow. We have been assigned to work another set of robbers and they were working a four to midnight shift or a three to 11. I don't know what their, their hours are three to 11, four to midnight, because there was a rash of circle K and, and seven 11 robbers in the area. Okay, that they were they were working. They were going to stake out some Seven Elevens and Circle Ks. Okay, so they were doing the same thing we were doing, except it's for Circle Ks and you know a convenience stores. So they said, "Hey, we, we can't join you tomorrow." So um, and 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 that was I'll, I'll I'll always remember that because it's like again one of those time and chance things. Could we have used another twelve detectives or 10, 10 officers? Heck yeah, you know we could have used. Them, you know? <laughs> But and uh, it would have saved all this, like, hey, you know, sure. I'm talking to the PD, I'm talking to the FBI here, you know, it's like, yeah. and driving, you know, it's like, just yeah. crazy, crazy stuff, you know, so, but yeah. no, I mean, little, little stuff like that, you know, uh, you know, there's some other little minutia stuff that happened, you know, but I mean, not, not to that. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> what was the aftermath? Like this, like all the fallout from it within the FBI? You know, that's a that's an interesting question, and uh, I don't know how to phrase this or how to say it without being without sounding like an ass, you know. But I have to tell you that my own agency, not not Miami, but FBI headquarters, was immediately like like if not that day, the next day, casting blame. On, neg on negligent agents, poorly prepared, you know, uninformed, uh, unprepared, you know, and I think, what are you people talking about? You know, uh, where is this coming from? You know, and it's like, you guys, you know, were, you, you should have had a swap, the same thing, you should have had a swap team out there if you knew these guys. Were I mean, they were getting the same, uh, the same bad information that everybody else was getting. And it wasn't until things got sorted out, you know, that that, that they they backed off. You know, I, there's a fun a funny incident, you know. I, I and I'm almost afraid to say anything, you know. But when we broke up from our meeting, um, John Hanlon and I were in the same car. We were we were we were at about 148th Street, and we had to drive to 130th. <clears throat> so we're driving. We left. We left the meeting location. We're driving north, and I said, "Hey, Jake, why don't you pull into this McDonald's? We can get some coffee." So he said, "Okay." So we pulled into the McDonald's, get some coffee, and when we're getting coffee, I call on the radio. I said, "Hey, Stevie," I, I said, "Hey, we're at the McDonald's. Do you want some coffee? I mean, I can get it for you since we're here." And he said, "No, thanks." You know, he said, "I had some in the office, but thanks anyway." So I said, "Okay, fine." So. <laughs> That was went on the air and it was recorded saying, hey, you know, Morellas was having coffee and he's letting the fucking Morellas was having coffee when his friends are getting shot. You know, <laughs> that that was actually yeah. Yeah. I was actually told that, that by some headquarters supervisors. Yeah. You were having coffee when your friends are getting shot. And I'm thinking, Dude, well, then I, I, explain this you, bullet wound in my left arm then, yeah, sir. I, I Are you at the same scene that i was <laughs> you know, yeah. so so i mean it was just it, anyway it was just all yeah. 
pandemonium. It was all confusing and stuff. You know, it, it took several days to sort things out. You know? right. But once once things sorted out, you know, let, yeah. let, let me tell you another little sure. incident. I, I guess people thought that I was uh, I was somehow uh, negligent or, or dereliction of duty or something like that because they sent the FBI is very good, you know, sending uh, uh, employee assistance. What do they call you know trauma trauma counselors? Yeah. Yeah. And stuff like that. Uh, we had an employee assistance program, EPA. You know, so, uh, and uh, we normally had a, uh, a a counselor that was a regular in the mm-hmm. FBI, but he was busy. Okay, so they sent the substitute. Okay, and I'm I'm literally 10 p.m. I I, I just I, I've been up since like five in the morning, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm just recovering from surgery at 10 p.m. And there's a knock at the door and my wife is there. She goes, hey, I, I'm, you know, Bill Smith. I'm a psychiatrist uh, with the FBI. And this and they asked me to come talk to your husband. You know? So I said, okay. So, uh, I, you know, I'm like all doped up, you know, and I'm, uh-huh. I can barely have my eyes open. I said, hey, how you doing? You know? He said, Ta-ta, you know, talking and I'm, I'm half listening, you know, half in and out, you know, of a, uh-huh. a drug-induced coma, you know. And then he tells my wife, he says, hey, I need to talk to your husband in private. She goes, are you sure? And she said, yeah. And uh, he said, yeah. And so she stepped outside, but she didn't close the door. She stepped outside, you know. And he starts talking to me and I'm like, like literally like in and out of uh-huh. consciousness, you know. Uh-huh. And he starts saying, you know, hey, you know what? There's negligence in this. And negligence. I was like, what? What, what are you saying? And uh, Liz was outside. She heard this and she goes, excuse me, who are you? He says, well, the bureau sent me. He said, what are you saying? What, what are you telling my husband? You know, negligence and this and that and the other thing. He says, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, the FBI said, I said and Liz says, you need to, you need to leave. Yeah. You know, you need to get out. You know? So <laughs> we, we laugh about it afterwards. But the FBI the substitute they sent was a counselor, uh, uh, a, a psychologist, psychiatrist, who was called in on uh, on problem employees, like uh, agents that uh, like are caught, you know, shoplifting, mm-hmm. or or they're caught with, uh, you know, a hooker, or or you know, stuff, you know, stuff mm-hmm. that people do, you know shoplifting is big you know uh, problem employees you know that are probably going to get fired you know so they sent him to talk to me about about the shooting incident you know and they probably said that son of a bitch stopped for coffee and didn't help his buddies you know so, <laughs> so uh, Liz, Liz threw him out you know and I vaguely remember because I was like I had just come yeah. out of surgery and I'm doped up to the right. ears Speaking of your wife, she's also an FBI agent and is on duty at the time and hears all of this on the radio. Is that correct? She was actually in Homestead, which is uh, from the shooting incident. It's uh, south about 15 miles. You know, she was out with her partner because uh-huh. she had she had something to do at four in the morning that morning. So she le- she actually left at, at like three in the morning. You know, and uh, say, hey, you know, let's have lunch. That's I, that's the last thing I say because I'm going to be in the I was yeah. going to be in the same part of Miami. You know, let, let's do lunch. You know, so mm-hmm. she said, okay, I'll hook up with you. You know, on the radio or something. L- literally, <laughs> she hooked up on the radio. You know, when she comes over to the crime scene and she sees that she sees my jacket, she goes, "Where's that?" 
and uh, our, our, my, our, our friends from the squad said, hey, he's, he was taken to South Miami Hospital. Uh-huh. And she said, okay, I know where that is. So she jumped in her car and went to South Miami. <laughs> so, wow. so many little funny things, you know, that yeah. I mean, we can laugh about it now. But, you know, right. sometimes, you know, they were a bit traumatic, you know. So. <laughs> oh, what changes took place in the FBI as far as like your procedures and protocols after this incident? Wow, I mean, that... That is huge. I mean, that, that's why I put down uh, mm-hmm. the subtitle, Five Minutes to Change the Bureau, you know. Uh-huh. Um, th- th- one of the first things that changed were, were weapons, you know, the, uh, uh, because the agents with the nine millimeters, they, they had 30, 30 shots. Okay, mm-hmm. we had, I had six and I had two speed loaders. I had 18. Uh-huh. Okay, so, but I had to reload every, every six shots, you know, as yeah. opposed to having to, re- you know, if, if you have a, a pistol, you can reload after 15 uh-huh. shots, you know, so. So that was big, you know. The FBI started looking into uh, into con- converting, transitioning from revolvers to pistols, and that was the that was the incident that ha- helped it make a decision. Mm-hmm. Okay, because uh, the bad guys had the uh, the thirty caliber, the thirty round magazine on the assault rifle. Okay, and yeah. the the agents who were shot, every agent who was shot in the hand was uh, had was a revolver shoot. Okay going down, having to reload, okay, shot through the hand or shot in the arm. So, you know, they said, hey, you know what? I mean, it makes sense. You know, the guys that with the magazines, 30, 15 <laughs> shots don't have to reload as often. Right. So, so uh, that was the biggest change, okay? And then uh, a little bit deeper, it was the ballistics, okay? Because there were some hits that happened to uh, one of the plat that uh, one of the doctors said, hey, this hit through his, through his right arm and into his uh, right lung should have killed him, should have stopped him. Okay, should have stopped him. And then eventually he should, should have died right away or pretty close to death. And that's kind of misleading because I've, I've talked to a doctor and he goes, hey, you know what? It, the hit was labeled non-survivable. Okay, and it was a non-survivable hit. That, that doesn't translate into instant kill. Okay, right. there's a difference between non-survivable and and like one shot, one kill. You know that that mm-hmm. doesn't equate. Okay, so so uh, sometimes people get confused. You know between non-survivable, you know, and, and a sniper blowing your brain out. You right. know, so you drop. You know, so but uh, people could not understand. You know, here's the kicker: uh, the way he was wounded. Okay, nine times out of out of ten, you know, or ninety-nine times out of a hundred. The person who was shot in that that uh, manner probably should have given up. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, he was shot with a nine millimeter round. Okay, and it was a hundred and fifteen grain uh, silver tip hollow point. Uh, I think it was Remington or Win- I forget Remington Winchester. But, Winchester uh, was the silver tip. Yeah, Winchester. Yeah. yeah. So people can say, "Hey, that bullet was too light." That that's the problem. Okay, and it was 115. You know, and that yeah. that there's a lot to be said about that. You know? mm-hmm. And I don't begrudge the 115 grain. I mean, I, I was told that the bullet went through a lot of tissue. It went through his bicep and then through his lung. It just it's literally literally stopped the half inch from his heart. Right. You know, that's how close it came to hitting him in the heart. Okay, right. so. Um, Again, there's that time and chance, you know, but people say, hey, listen, there was 115 grain. You know, you need something like 180, 200 grain bullet, you know, to, you know with some, some mass and some speed. You know, so. so that caused uh, 
the the research into into the the, cap, the, the calibers. Okay, uh, the nine millimeter versus ten millimeter versus the forty five, you know, and then uh, Smith and Wesson ended up coming up with the forty caliber. I don't know if people remember this, but when it first came out, you know, the actual bullet itself used to be the S and W 40, 40 mm -hmm. cal, no, 40, for, uh, yeah, yeah, 40 S, &W. S and W. Yeah, yeah. 40 S and W. Yeah. So, you know, they except, except for the Glocks because they wouldn't put S and W on their gun. It was 40 auto. <laughs> exactly. Right. But the, 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 the bullets themselves were, were the S and W, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, 40. So, uh, so that changed. And then, you know what, we started getting research into, you know, why, why did uh, the platmatics, you know, fight so much, you know, and I'm thinking that's easy because they, they were, it's their mindset, you know, mm -hmm. that's something you really can't study in an individual. You know, we were talking about it earlier, I think off, off camera. Um, why, why does, why do certain people react a certain way? And why do other people react differently? You know, it's like, well, you know, mm -hmm. it goes, it, it, there's, there's a ton of variables okay your 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 age your physical yeah. conditioning your training training is huge mm -hmm. huge 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 training okay i mean it, it could be it could be uh, it could be as subtle as are you a man or a woman yeah. okay uh it, it could even be your religion your, what, what are your beliefs in life you know, do you believe in an afterlife do you believe in, in a non-afterlife i mean there are so many different variables mm -hmm. okay uh, but the biggest variable and the biggest contributor is training, okay? Uh, and we went up against two guys who, who were trained by the 101st Airborne, okay? I mean, and I was trained by the Marine Corps. I mean, you know, you, you never give up. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I hate to use the term, you know, but I'll, I'll use it. You know, when I, the first time I ever heard this, you know, I was, I was like, I had to stop and think about it for a second, you know, and that was in the Marine Corps, you know, and it was very simple. It said death before dishonor. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what, what, did you, what did you say? They said, it's better to be dead than to dishonor yourself, you know? So, and uh, I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's pretty, that's a pretty serious commitment. <laughs> you know? So, you know, I mean, you kind of laid, you kind of laid, you know, kind of like the old poker. I'm all in. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Death before dishonor. You know, and yeah. I tell you, that mindset. You know, I, there are there are people out there. You know, there yeah. are. You know, you hear all the cliche, all the BS and stuff. Hey, they'll never take me alive. You know, the, mm -hmm. the real the people that mean yeah. it don't. They, they don't have to yeah. say it. Right. I mean, they know it. You know, I, yeah. people don't always say, "Hey, they'll never take me alive." You know, that's a, that's just somebody you know boasting. Mm -hmm. You know, but plant management. You know, they were they were military trained, you know, as was as was I, you know, it's like they uh, that training, you know, and I tell people, I say, hey, train, what is training training? You, you build a base, you build a base to stand on, you know, uh, training is problem solving. OK, it's physical fitness, teamwork and it's problem solving. That's all training is, okay? Yeah. You have a problem, you know, you, whether it's, hey, I need to get 100 points on this to, to keep my job, or, or you know, in the military, we used to have all these uh, different problems. You know, you got to get this wounded man, you know, 200-pound dummy across this open water, and you've got a, a toothpick and, and a uh, and a paperclip. Now, get him across, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of like a MacGyver thing, you know? So, yeah. but that helps you think. It makes you think mm -hmm. outside the box. It, 
you know, it forms yeah. teamwork and all, all kinds of stuff. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's important, you know, so, yeah. but the Bureau kept looking at it and saying, hey, how, why, why did this, these two guys keep fighting? It's that mindset, yep. you know, survival, survivor mindset, you know, and it just, you know, it's big now. I mean, now everybody talks about it like it's, it's, you know, it's like, you know, old, old hat. But back then, the, you know, the law enforcement was going, what the hell happened? Yeah. You know, how did these two guys, why did they keep fighting? Yeah. Because Maddox uh, was shot six times, four, four in the head, uh, one in the neck, and one in the wrist. Okay. And Platt was shot 12 times. Platt was shot to pieces. I mean, really, literally, okay, broken, broken bones, uh, severed arteries, collapsed lung. Uh, I hit, uh, I, I hit him in the, uh, in the forehead right here. It cracked his skull. Uh, just in, in injuries, 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 and he kept fighting. He kept fighting till his last breath. I mean, you know, death before dishonor, or they'll never take me alive. You know, so uh, survivor mindset. You know, and. You, you really you really have to practice it. I mean, you just can't, you know, show up one morning and drink coffee and say, hey, I have a survivor mind. <laughs> yeah. You got you got to practice it. I mean, I'm 70 years old now. I mean, I, I'm a little bit out of shape, you know, yeah. like 30 years out of shape. You know, so, but, uh, you know, young young officers, man, you got to be fit. You got to be alert. You know, you got to be well-trained, trained, trained. Okay, that's the, 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 uh, the bottom line, man. Training, training, training. And never give up. Oh, and another thing is wound, uh, wound ballistics. Okay, what do bullets do to a human target? Okay, and uh, that's one of the areas that I've studied a lot. You know, and it's it's like um, like I, I just said, uh, Maddox shot six times, four to the face, and and one to the neck, severed his uh, brachial artery and vein, and and the nerve bundle. I mean, it just totally severed the use of his right arm. Just no blood flow back and forth, and, and the nerves were cut. So th this this arm, this tool is done, okay? But what do bullets do to human, human targets? I mean, human tissue, okay? It's like, and that answer is some of it is physical. If you get hit in the spinal cord, obviously you're, you're going down. I mean, you're... Your, your connection, your nerve endings have just been severed. Okay, that's one thing. Or if you get shot through the brain, you know, by a sniper, you know, lights out, you know. But other other hits are, you know, th there's, a, there's a lot of wiggle room. A lung hit, I mean, it's going to be very unpleasant, you know, but you can still survive, you know. Right. Uh, hits to different parts of the body, you know. If you, if you, don't, if you don't hit a, a weight-bearing bone like your thigh, you know, you can keep functioning. You know? yeah. um, but it's all a matter of wound ballistics and mindset. Okay, uh, I've heard stories of people getting wounded, like in the shoulder or hand. They quit fighting. They say, "Oh my God, you know this hurts too much, or you know, I I can't work." Baloney, man! You, you still have a left hand. You know, you may have to save your life with your left hand. Right. So, I mean, yeah. there's, there's so many different different variables out there. So many yeah. different variables. You know, it, it dawns on me that when people talk about this incident, they talk about all the stuff that those two guys did after they were wounded, after he had received the non-survivable wound. Yeah. And I, and I sit back and think, you know, Ellis did some pretty good work after he was wounded, too. Yeah. No, you know what, though? I, you know, you know, 
if I can get into it, I don't want to make sure. this thing into a four-hour lecture, you know. But uh, we got all the time you want. People, people have asked me, "Hey, what's it feel like to get shot?" And I used to be, uh, you know, snarky about it. Say, "Hey, I don't know." Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like, but you know what? There's a, there's a lot of truth to that answer. Yeah. Because when I was shot, okay, I mean, I was this round hit me here. I mean, it, I mean, really, I mean, it mm -hmm. just, I had no clue, and it just. People say, how, how did it knock you down? And I don't know. I just went back, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I, it wasn't that the force hit me, but it was, there was a little bit of force, but the other part of it was a neurological reaction. And I tell people the, about the best way I can explain it. If you've ever been a, a deer hunter, when you shoot a, uh, when you shoot a large land mammal like that, sometimes, you know, when you hit them just right, they'll actually jump up. There's a yeah. neurological reaction. Or they'll jump and then run, and, and if, you're, yeah. if you're good, they'll fall down you know, in, two, in two or three paces. And I'm telling them, I say, hey, my body reacted like a large land. You know, it just yeah. it kind of jerked, and I went back. Okay, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward, like I'm looking at you right now, and then like in a split second, I'm looking up at the sky, you know, thinking, what the hell happened? You know, I had no clue, you know, and I, I really had no idea. Okay, and I'm trying to use my left my left hand to push up. I've got the shotgun in my right hand. I'm using my left hand to try to push me up, you know, because Gordon McNeil is up, you know, on the uh, on the car, and I, I'm trying to get up to reinforce him, you know. And I had no clue. It took me like a minute. I can't say more than a minute. Maybe a minute, ten seconds. You know, it's hard to tell. I'm just gauging it. It took me about a minute to actually realize that I had been shot. I had no pain at all, no pain cessation whatsoever. And I, it, the only reason I looked at my arm is because it wasn't working. I was trying to make, trying to use my, my hand to push up off the pavement, you know? <clears throat> and uh, I had to make a visual inspection of my left arm. Why, why wasn't it working? And when I made the visual inspection, I was like, oh shit. You know, that's when it came. It's like, holy cow, what the hell is that down there? You know, and I, I couldn't believe it was my, my arm. I actually reached over with my good hand and I brought it up in front of me like this, you know, and thinking, oh my God, it's attached, you know, and I'm thinking, okay. And then I just kind of threw it back on the ground, grabbed the shotgun and continued to scan for a threat because bullets are still going over my head, you know, so. But uh, again, I went through the same process, you know, when I realized that I had, had a, a grazing head, well, I, didn't, I didn't know it was grazing at the time. I thought I had actually been shot, you know, and I put the shotgun down and I actually took, put my fingers like this, you know, and I went expecting to feel a big mush open spot yeah. here in my brain and stuff, you know. Yeah. And luckily, all I felt was skull, you know, my hard skull, you know. So um, yeah. um, I think, well, you know, it must must have just been a grazing head wound because uh, I saw the arterial bleeding coming out. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I'm doing this, you know, and yeah. it just, you know, like <laughs> stupid first aid, you know, when I was doing this, I actually yeah. was put a, uh, a, pushed a flap of skin over the artery that that had been severed, you know, and I was like this, and I pushed the flap of skin over the artery, and it slowed the bleeding down. You know? I mean, it was still bleeding, but not right. not squirting, you know. So, but uh, just weird stuff, you know. I didn't even know I'd been shot, you know. Uh, but see, once I realized I was shot, it, it was it's important. It was psychologically devastating. It really was. It's like, oh man, it's tough enough to survive. And now I have to survive with, with a shattered arm, you know, yeah. it's going to make it doubly hard, which meant that I had to, you know, stay, stay 
firm stay on, on task doubly hard myself. Mm -hmm. So I kept, you know, kept looking for threats, you know. And this incident lasted so long, you know, I started actually, uh, towards the end, I started actually passing out. I was, I was losing consciousness from the blood loss, you know, I was going, you know, like li literally my chin would hit my chest. It would wake me up and startle me. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> it scared the heck out of me because it was like, what the hell, you know? <laughs> So uh, it it took it took it took a bit to, to to stay focused towards the end, you know. So yeah. much less find those fun sites. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here's a good question: Did you see your sites? Absolutely, absolutely. And I knew, you know what though? I, I don't want to uh, be dramatic or you know right. or anything else. But I, I knew I knew your front sites is life. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. we, we both know that that this tool that you have the handgun or the longer tool, a rifle, the only way that tool is gonna to work is to, to, to make it work properly. And you gotta yeah. put the front sight in between the rear sight and then put those sights aligned on the target. Yeah. It can't work any other way. If yeah. any other way, you're just making noise. You're just, yeah. you're just making noise. <laughs> you know, like uh, shooting shooting your rifle off at New Year's. <laughs> Big deal, you know. No, but the only way you're going to make it work is the front sight. And I remember the front sight on my shotgun clearly. Even right now, as, as we're having a conversation, I can see it in my mind's eye. And I can see the front sight on my revolver when I started moving in on the target. Front sight, front sight, front sight. And I've, had, I've actually had people argue with me. Saying there's no possible way that you could have seen that front sight. <laughs> what makes you say that? I, mean, I think it was a doctor or something. Yeah. You know, he was doing some research, and he he, he heard my lecture. You know, because he, he had been doing a bunch of research. You know, the people mm -hmm. people he said people uh, will go. I think his theory was people would go, go down to point shooting. Okay, and I have I have no disagreement with that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you know when you if you're close like within, you know, I don't know, yeah. 10 yards, maybe, yeah. you know, seven yards, point shooting is, can work. Okay. But you still have to have eye, hand, you know, with your finger and they say, Hey, mm -hmm. wherever you, wherever you point your finger, it's where your eye, or wherever your eye looks, it's where your finger's going to go. Okay. I, I don't know, but he kept saying, you, you couldn't have seen your front side. So I think, God, what are you talking about? I mean, I'm telling you, I'm standing here right in front of you telling you that what I, my whole focus, I was getting, uh, I was passing out and, and my whole world was tunneling down because everything was getting black. And I said, the only thing that I could see was my revolver, my hand, and I, I could see the car at the end of the tunnel. I said, and, and the, the, because of the tunnel, I said, I knew it was going to be a tough shot because in my, my perception was I was shooting at 25 yards. Okay. The reality was I was shooting at 25 feet. Okay. So I think that helped me concentrate more because I'm thinking, Hey, I'm making a 25 yard shot. That means, you know, I mean, I've shot at 25 and that, that's unforgiving sometimes <laughs> one handed, you know, so I'm coming up and I'm thinking, okay, it's a 25 yard shot. So I concentrated very, very firmly on the front side, I told him. And he goes, after we had a conversation, this is like at some conference somewhere in the 90s. He said, man, I'm gonna have to go back and reevaluate my 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 data. He said, I said, I, said well, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm not telling you what to do, Doc, but it's right. from my incident, my personality, my my recollection is front side. 
and and that's it. I mean, you, you you've got you've got to keep thinking. You know, front side, front side, front side. We both know that you can't. I mean, you can point shoot at something if it's close. Yeah. You know, but you know, my perception was shooting at twenty five yards. You cannot point shoot at twenty five yards. Man. You might you might hit one out of twenty. You know, so if you're lucky, you know. So, but. Uh, I don't know. I mean, interesting things that uh, that right. come to your recollection. So, uh, that's, that's fascinating stuff. Um, as we let off the show, we talked about you know this incident was part of your life. It's not your entire life. What mm-hmm. would you like to share about share with the audience about Ed Morales after the Miami firefight? Ooh, Ed Morales after the Miami. Well, I I was I was not indicted. I was was there fired. an attempt? Was there an attempt to indict you? No, no. I mean, I, my career afterwards. You know, I, I wasn't indicted for my, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for my activity. And I wasn't fired. Right. You know, and I don't think I'm going to hell for my activity. So I, I right. think I, I stayed on 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 the right, right. side of the law. <laughs> so, yeah. But I, I say that in jest because uh, uh, I made a joke to when I went to, the FBI transferred me to Quantico because I mean I, I was disabled for for two twenty seven months. Okay. I, I was on light duty. I mean, my arm was totally toast. I mean, completely toast. Mm-hmm. I went through uh, uh, rehab, you know, uh, the physical therapy, like for literally 27, 27 months. And I, I couldn't lift anything. It was painful and all this sort of stuff. You know, they did a great job reconstructing the arm, you know. So I'm totally grateful for that. But uh, when I was at Chronicle, it was great because, you know, I, I got to share my experiences, you know. <clears throat> With new agents and, and uh, police officers, and that's kind of how I got my, my start in the lecture circuit uh, in, in the '90s. And uh, but when the doctor told me, "Hey," said, "Hey, you are fit for duty. I'm taking you off light duty." Okay. As soon as he said that, I went home to talk to Liz, and I said, "Hey, the doctor said I'm fit for duty, so I'm not. There's no no more restriction." You know? uh, I said, I, "I know how you feel." So I said, I'm asking you now, do you want to get out of Quantico? And she said, yes. You know, we want to, we wanted to leave Quantico because both of us, we're, we're people of action. You know, it's like, hey, I, I, I told Liz, you know, I don't want to play cop with Quantico. I want to be a cop, you know? <laughs> so, and don't get me wrong. And, and I hope people don't take this the wrong way. Quantico is fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. I ended my career at Quantico, but I ended my career as a senior old agent. Okay. When I went to Quantico the first time, I was in my, my early 30s. I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't want to be, you know, I, I wanted to be a cop, not play cop, you know. So, so I, w- I went to management and I said, hey, a doctor said I'm, I'm on full, full duty now. And I said, hey, I thought about it. And I want to request a transfer out of Quantico. And they said, okay, you want to go to FBI headquarters to be a supervisor? And I'm asking, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be a headquarters supervisor. I said, "Are you crazy?" I said, "I said I'll be thrown out of I'll be thrown out of headquarters in a week." You know, so so I said, "Hey, Liz and I want to go back to Miami," and they ended up looking at me like I had two heads. So they're looking at me like, "What? Why do you want to go back to Miami?" You know, I said, "Hey, the weather's great. You know, the food is great, and all our friends are in Miami. All our friends are in Miami." So we want to go back. And plus, the work's great. You know, so they said, no, we're not going to send you to Miami. 
So, I mean, this went back and forth for several weeks or months, you know, I said, hey, and I'm, management said, hey, and you know what though? You know, you're a good guy and all that, but we, we, we're gonna send you to a psychiatrist. They sent me to a freaking psychiatrist. Okay, they, they thought I was Looney Tunes or something. I don't know, they said, why do you wanna go back to my I said, because the weather, the food, the people and the work. I mean, what else do you want, you know? I certainly don't want to go to WFO. Yeah. You know, why would I want to go to Washington Field Office, man? I said, like, commuting one hour to get to work. I said, give me a break. Come on, guys. So uh, they said, nope, they sent me to a psychiatrist. And, I, and uh, he said, why do you want to go back to Miami? The four reasons, you know. He said, is, there, is that the only reason? I said, yeah. you know, I didn't want to tell him. I said, hey, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty tired of Quantico. I mean, I have to be polite all the time. And it's very difficult for me to be polite all the time. You know? <laughs> You know, if you know what I mean. You know, so, yeah. But uh, um, the, the psychiatrist didn't see anything wrong with it, but he's, <clears throat> he didn't want to take a risk. He said, okay, I will, I will uh, sign off on this if you can do this. He said, I want you to, to take a TDY trip to Miami for a couple of weeks or a month and then uh, and see how you react. And I looked at him and said, Doc, I said, how in the hell am I going to arrange for a TDY to Miami for a month? I don't have that kind of authority. Mm-hmm. He said, well, that's, that's up to you. you. You work it out. But he said, I'm not going to approve anything until you go to Miami, sp- spend some time down there, see how you react, and then come back and tell me, you know, report back to me. I said, Jesus Christ almighty, man. Give me a break. So I was stuck between a rock and a hard spot. You know, so. And I called Miami looking for favors, you know, and it's like, you know, it's like, hey, Mother Hubbard's covered. And who? Who? <laughs> Hanging up the phone. No, but, you know, I, I got a hold of Gordon McNeil, who was still down there. I said, hey, Ed, you know, we're having a, a recruiting uh, event, you know, in, in a couple of weeks at, at one of the uh, universities or something like that. It's going to be an all-week recruiting event. So why don't you come down on Sunday, spend the week here recruiting, meeting, you know, all the young people and stuff like that. Spend spend the week down here, spend the weekend before and the weekend after, and then that's just satisfied, you know. So I said, okay. So I arranged it, you know, and I went down uh, to Miami. It was with Gordon, you know, it was a great time. You know, he's a great guy, was a great guy. And uh, talked to young students, you know, uh, you know, people, you know, in college and stuff like that. It was like a, a college workshop. And I love crushing their dreams, you know. It's like young people, all enthusiastic, bushy guy. You know, it's like, oh my God. And now you crush your dreams for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know, the entry level pay is $20,000. You know, it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you have to really be dedicated if you want to be yeah. an FBI. You know? yep. They said, you're joking, right? I said, no. At the time, it was like 25000 It was like, you know, it was pretty good pay for the time. They were like, are you kidding me? You know, yeah. they expected to make twice that much, you know, so. Yeah. But anyway, I went back, told the doc, you know, I said, hey, doc, you know, I, I went down there and said, how long were you down there? I said, uh, a weekend and a weekend and a week, you know, so yeah. that's not enough time. I said, doc, I don't have control. I can't, if I could, I'd, I'd send myself TDY to San Diego. What the hell, you know? It's like, I'm going to love San Diego weather too, you know? So he said, okay, okay. So, you know. I said, I didn't take hostages. I didn't end up sitting in my room crying, you know, or anything else, you know, so everything is fine. 
you know, so we said, okay, he reluctantly signed off on it. And as soon as he signed off, you know, I requested the transfer to Miami. And that's how I ended up back, back in Miami in 1989. <clears throat> so the question is, what did I do after my shooting? You know, and I told, <laughs> I, I told, I didn't tell the doctor because he would have committed me. But I told all my friends, I said, hey, you know what? After the shooting, I said, you know, I had a near, near death experience. I said, I needed something to, to, you know, kind of like relax and, and, and uh, you know, take it easy, you know. So I ended up working undercover narcotics in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> yeah, really, what's the worst that can happen, you know? <laughs> you know, and I, I mean, I, I, I ended up working narcotics for like 15 years, but I worked undercover on a great deal. I mean, I, there were like, there was a five year stretch where I worked undercover like for five years, you know, so. But as it turns out, you know, I was involved in a second shooting incident in a drug case in 1993 uh, or 92, I forget when it, it was. One of those things. It was only only six shots fired, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> only but, six, yeah. You know, but the thing is, you know, I, I wasn't the shooter. I was the the agent next to the shooter because yeah. I was looking this way and he was looking that way, and he saw something over there and he just opened opened up, you know. And I, of course, by yeah. the time I turned, the threat was gone, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> No, I think it was only one bad guy shot. So, but yeah, I mean, the, sequ the sequels are never as good as the original. Yeah, no, it's like eh, <laughs> it was okay. Was it good for you? Yeah. It was good for <laughs> <laughs> is, is there anything that you would like to discuss that I have not asked you about tonight? No, you know what? Though I just want to uh, close by saying, hey guys, you know, uh, especially you active duty guys, man, you know, training, 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 and I know. Uh, departments, uh, you know, agencies, you know, you, know I, you hate to say it, but budgets run departments, you know, budgets run training, you know, and, and you have to work within your budgets. But I tell you what, though, I mean, there's all kinds of different training you can do, I mean, you know, dry fire training, you know, it, maybe you can pay for your own training, pay for your own ammo. But, you know, there's no sense going to practice uh, firearms, you know, if you're going to be doing shooting like this all the time, you know, like, yeah. no. You need to have good technique, okay? You yeah. need to have, I mean, some, you've got to have the basic fundamentals of firearms, okay? Yeah. Um, but the, the just bust caps down range, you know, you might as well just, you know, save your money, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, but you can make, uh, you, you can make the best of training, you know, even on, on a limited budget for individuals or departments. And I have found that one of the most unforgiving courses that you can fire is uh, what we call the, the 30 shot bullseye course. Mm -hmm. The you know you start at the 25 uh, slow fire uh, 10 rounds, and then you move to the 15 and you you slow fire 10 rounds, mm -hmm. and then at the 15 you you rapid fire uh, 10 rounds. Okay, and I mean not not all 10 at the same time, but it's five 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 and five five. Mm -hmm. Okay, and you're shooting at a bullseye about the size. Well, smaller than my face, you know, like yeah. like this. Okay, at 25 yards, it is unforgiving. I mean, you have to have the basic fundamentals of firearms training to be able to hit that bullseye. You got to have that first before you go into combat shooting. Okay, everybody says, "Hey, let's get into combat, dude." I mean, yeah, I, I love combat shooting too, but if you can't shoot for beans, you know, on a bullseye, of course, you know, you, you need to master that first, you know, so, so training, training, training are, is, is my advice. And then always 
our environment has gotten so bad I mean, with all the, uh, you know, defund the police crap that's going on out there. I mean, I, I, I brace my heart because you know, I see a lot of departments, you know, losing people, you know, mm-hmm. even the FBI is having trouble recruiting. I mean, it's like amazing. I mean, it's just across the nation. Okay. There are some good departments out there, you know, people that are hiring and bonuses and all this sort of good stuff. But, you know, we all can't, can't end up in Texas and Florida, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, we have to kind of spread it out. You know? So, but uh, it's almost to a point where, you know, you need to have your head on a swivel all the time, you know, and you need to know that your, your department and your jurisdiction is going to have your back. Okay. I mean, because honestly, I don't think I could work for a department that, you know, is so squishy on, on having my back. You know, I, I don't, I knew, I knew the FBI always had my back. Okay. Period. End of story. You know, and, and, and I don't know how it is today. I mean, in today's environment, I think they probably still do, but, um, and um, if not, man, you have to make a, a, a serious choice. You know, it's like, hey, do I go to the neighboring jurisdiction or do I go to the next state over or whatever? You know? uh, because it is, it is your life, your livelihood. You know? and if anything happens, you're the one that has to pay the price, you know. Um, and then the other issue is um, um, I keep telling people, you know, that because everybody seems to be like gun shy now. And I, I don't mean that as a joke, you know, as a little tongue in cheek. But everybody seems to be gunshot now. And I keep telling them, I say, hey, folks, deadly force, deadly force policy. The mayor in your city doesn't set deadly force policy. The city council in your city doesn't set deadly force policy. The governor in your state doesn't set deadly force policy. The Supreme Court of the United States has set the deadly force policy. Okay, so it doesn't matter what some Yahoo mayor or city councilman says, you know, obviously you have to work this out with the department and, and your, your legal advisors, your, your, your uh, you know, I, I think in the, in the FBI we had legal advisors, you know, if you wanted to run some legal issue by them, it's like, hey, can I do this? Can I do that? No, you can't do that, but you can do this, you know, so that type of stuff. So uh, deadly force is the law of the land, period, end of story. You know, a police officer has the right to use deadly force to protect himself from death or serious injury. He has that right to protect his partner. He has that right to protect the citizens of his community, okay? And you should not second guess that, okay? If you have any doubts and you're in the wrong department, you know, you're in the wrong job. Because I always told people, I say, hey, there should never be a question in your mind about the deadly force. You know what? If, and after my shooting incident, I'll tell you what, I, I was, people knew, <laughs> you know, got to watch Ed, man, because Ed will see something that's a threat and he will respond in a, like a laser. Like, and people knew that, you know, say, hey, you know, they, they almost had to have somebody in front of me to, that keep, you know, like a friendly target in front of me to keep me from lighting somebody up, you know, because I wouldn't tolerate it. I mean, I was shot twice. I, w- I will not tolerate anybody, you know, even looking at me like, like they have a gun or a knife. No way. Okay. And that's, that's the same way uh, officers should, should look, look at things. You know, it's like, well, he only had a knife. He shouldn't have shot. Forget about it, you know, dude. 
you know, I, I've, said, I've seen videos of police officers retreating a city block with, from a guy with a knife. It's like, give me a break, man. I mean, I, I don't understand it. I mean, you know, there is leeway. You give, you, you know, you give, you give, to, but not a whole city block. I mean, I'm not going to run backwards 100 yards. Yeah. You know, it's like, give me a break. You know, I mean, yeah. there's, there's a point, you know. So deadly force, you have, you have the, the right to use deadly force and never forget that, okay? The other thing is, you are also protected by the same rights that every other citizen is protected by. You know, you have the right to an attorney, you have the right to remain silent. If you think you've done something that's on the line, you know, let me step back to deadly force. Sure. Um, the Supreme Court deadly force policy is 100%, okay? Most agencies that, that I've been around since, since, since my uh, FBI career, most agencies will set their deadly force policy at 95%, 90%. You, you see the difference? Uh, Supreme Court is 100%. Your department policy is 90%. That means that they give you 10%. They give you some leeway. If you screw up, you still have that buffer. You're still, you're still within the Supreme Court range, okay? So they always set deadly force policy a little tighter than the Supreme Court, okay? So if you end up screwing up something with your department, you're still protected by, you still have that leeway, that, that buffer zone with, for, the, for the Supreme Court, okay? So that, that's understandable, you know, because they always say, hey, you know, most, most, most agencies' policies are tighter than the Supreme Court rulings. Okay, and that gives you, you know, it's kind of like it gives you if you if you like step step out step out step outside the line, you're still you're still protected. You know? So, so you got to remember that part. Now, uh, the other part is wound ballistics. Okay, there's so many misconceptions out there that you know, hey, if I get shot, you know, I'm, I I I'm going to be incapacitated. Well, that is a possibility. Okay, but. People need to understand that it is super hard, very hard to kill a human target. That's the only way I can tell you. And I'm being blunt about it. A human target. Okay. A human being, somebody who's trying to kill you or kill your partner or kill your family, whatever. Okay. It is very difficult to kill a human target. Okay. So the same applies to you just because you get injured whether you're shot, stabbed, or hit with, with a stick or whatever, that doesn't mean that you're, you're, you should die. It, don't have it in your mind. Hey, listen, I've been shot. I need to die. No, hell no. You, know? you need to keep persevering. You need to keep fighting. You need to come up with an option, a plan, so, you know, some sort of reaction. Okay? So you can take a massive amount of punishment before you die. Okay? It, it's, it's been proven so many times. So, so many times, just read, read, read the, look at the news, look, read the papers, you know, so-and-so was shot three times and survived. Okay. I, I, I've seen, I've seen it both ways. I've seen somebody get shot or injured. You know, um, it was a, a guy who shot himself with an arrow through, uh, through, through the thigh. He, he was an idiot. He didn't, he didn't bandage it up and he bled to death. Okay. There's another guy that shot six times in the chest. He survived. You know? So, I mean, there's so many variables out there. So just because you're injured doesn't mean you're going to die. Okay. The human body can take massive amounts of punishment. Okay. So, you know, it's hard to kill a human target. Remember that it, it works for bad guys. It works for you. Okay. So my, my point is, you know, if you think you killed the bad guy or stopped him, 
keep an eye on them regardless. Okay, until you get cuffs on them. You know? And then uh, uh, it never hurts. And I, I'm almost reluctant to say this, but it never hurts. Uh, and I don't, punches are tight, you know, uh, it never hurts to have. I honestly don't know how departments work now with the police unions and all this sort of stuff. But depending on your circumstances, it never hurts to have your personal uh, liability insurance. I, I have personal liability insurance for, for shootings, okay? And I'm not a, I'm not a shill for any, any uh, company or organization. I won't even mention it. But if anybody's interested, they can get a hold of you, and then I'll tell them, you know, I'll sure. tell you what I have. You know? But you, it's, it almost, it's almost to a point where, you know, in, in today's society, uh, stupid uh uh, mayors and city councils are, are they're pulling the uh, the qualified immunity for officers. You know, a lot of states have pulled that from officers. If you do anything, you're, you're subject to lawsuits. Or any whim, any 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 scumbag can sue you for anything now. Yeah. Okay, so it, it almost almost to a point where you need your own liability insurance, even though you're a professional police officer or or whatever you are. You know. I think so, it was Colorado that passed the law that every officer had to carry their own personal liability. Okay, see, that, that, that's yeah. news to me, you know. Yeah. But anyway, it, it doesn't hurt. You know, it doesn't hurt to have it, you know. And then, uh, <clears throat> got to have one more thing. I forgot what it was now. Um, it'll come to me in a second. I just want to say, hey, listen, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a marathon, not, not a race. Um, it, uh, and sometimes, you know, you, you you get bogged down with minutia. You get bogged down with bullshit. Okay, and, and it's tough, you know. But you you can persevere. And if you can't, you know, I mean, there's maybe the grass is green around the other side, some other jurisdiction, some other city. You know, you never know. <clears throat> but uh, I mean, you know, we need we need uh, we need true warriors, and right? we need we need true uh, sheepdogs, you know, because there's a lot of wolves out there. You know? So <laughs> a lot of wolves out there, and. Uh, you know, in the end, you know, guys, uh, ladies, you need to take care of yourself individually. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't joking. I am 70 years old. I mean, I know I look like a spry 65-year-old guy. You know, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, I've managed to survive just to be 70, you know, but I've, I've taken a lot of lumps, I mean, a lot of hits. You know, my knees don't work anymore. My hips don't work anymore. My arm, my, my wounded arm, it's never worked, you know, since 86, you know. So, but, uh, you know, you got to take care of yourself take care of your fitness, your mental fitness too. Um, and don't be afraid to, to, to seek help, you know, uh, your family, your, your coworkers, your, your religious uh, folks, you know, whether it's a, a rabbi, a priest or a whatever, um, you know, and uh, you got to take care of your family, take care of yourself and take care of your, your colleagues. Because okay. in the end, guys, I mean, I mean, like I said, I've been retired almost 20 years now. In the end, all I have is my family. Okay, because a lot of my friends, you know, we're getting up there. It's like, man, you look around, you know, who, who showed up for, for roll call? I mean, there's fewer and fewer people you know, showing up for roll call, you know. So in the end, all you're going to have is your family. So you got to take care of your family. And and that's it, Lee. I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling now, you know, so... Well, sir, thank you for taking the time to come on the show and uh, yep. share all your insight. Yep. And I very much appreciate it. And, you know, it's to actually be able to talk 
to someone who was involved in such a pivotal incident is a big deal. And you know, it, in history classes in college, they talked about the importance of going to the primary source. Mm-hmm. And you know, you are you are obviously the primary source available for for the Miami yeah. incident. And so, thank you for making yourself available. No, Lee, it was my pleasure. You know, I'll go out of my way for any copper man, any anytime, anywhere. I mean, because uh, I mean, you know, if you're you are when I am when you know, I, I love cops. You know, men, women, you know, uh, federal, state, and local doesn't matter. You know, as, as long as you're a good guy, you know, rule of law, you know, follow follow the rules. You know, mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I I love cops. You know, and uh, sure. you know, anytime, any any anybody wants me to, to talk to them, you know, they can contact me through you and. Mm-hmm. And we can work something out, you know. So, sure. uh, I mean, I don't know everything, but what, right. what you know, I know a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. And it's been uh, my pleasure. It really, uh, it really has been. Well, thank you. And to the audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. So, after you hit the subscribe button, if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for your time. Absolutely.